You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Just a little bit crunchy. Okay. Just like you. Crunchy. That's interesting. Go put that on her and Flo. Okay. All right, babe. Yes, love so it. happy you're here. Go, Flo, go. <laughs> Out of here. Flo? Jesus Christ, you send her back to sea, bro. <laughs> that chicken's fat. Assholes are everywhere. And there's more of them every fucking day. We breed them like flies. You guys are such assholes. How can they be like oh, What gives you the right to say that about anybody? Bro, like fucking a little tank walking oh. by, bro. God, you guys are such what dicks. What is the matter? Fuck you know, you, what, what, what right do you have to say that about anybody? Okay, Mom, shut up. Said, Jesus Christ. Relax, well, how, how fucking would you paranoid feel? How would you feel if I said that about you? You know, you guys aren't so fucking How about yourselves. I take my shoe and shove it in your mouth, okay? Oh, oh I'm sure you just, you just want to fuck me. That's what it's all about. <laughs> You oh, fuck anything uh, yeah. <laughs> you fucking squatty piece of shit. <laughs> oh, oh. I'm not even gonna say it. I'm not even gonna say it. I'm not gonna sink to your level. Take this little fucking rubber bands out of your hair. I'm not gonna sink to your level. Take that stupid shit. Ah, we're fucking biatch. That's a little much, man. I'm yeah, kidding. Why I'm you don't even know this girl? I don't know any of you guys. No, getting to know each other. No real harm was done. She didn't hear. She was fat. It was funny. I say, wow, I find you attractive. Why do I find you attractive? Because you're an asshole. Then that must mean that I'm an asshole as well. But... Stop looking at me like that. I'll fucking throw a bottle at your face, you goddamn yeah, whore. Sure you, you look like you're fucking possessed, bro. Relax. I know. You know, you know, you know what am I supposed night. to do, bro? Put your arm around her or something. Push the fuck my fucking girlfriend. Put my arm around her, bro. So why don't you sit with us? I can't. No, no, no. Nah. Come sit for a minute. Guys, this is my friend, Constance. Hey, Hey, How are you? Hey, Constance. What's up, Joe? I just met this guy, by the way. Hey, I just met this guy. What's up, dude? What's up? How you doing, bro? There's no point, really. You're not even a fan of the Grateful Dead, are you? Why are you You have obviously you have nowhere else to go. Is that it? Because you're doing nothing but fucking making everybody like oh, miserable. She's one of those chicks that lives in like a Volkswagen van. And those oh, you know noble. what? Shut up. What do you know about that anyway? <laughs> oh, you into that kind of shit too? <laughs> Whatever. You guys are so insensitive. Look at she's crying here at the table. It's okay, so look. uncool. Okay, deep, deep down inside, they don't care about you, and they don't care about themselves. Well, you sort of alienate yourself. You're such a schmuck. Myself, I think you're the one that's alienated. No, you're the one with the phone. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Mike Sullivan. Hey, how you doing? You caught me at a weird time. I was just uh, sucking farts out of a sheet. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Rausch. What's going on, bro? Because there's going to be a lot of bros in this, so what's up, bro? So, bro, this week on the Projection Booth, we're doing a special episode, bro. We're looking at the 2001 movie from R.D. Robb, Don's Plum. The film remains officially unreleased in the U.S. and Canada, though it's available on DVD in other parts of the world. The film stars a group of young actors known colloquially as the Pussy Posse, not to be confused with the Buddy Brigade. We'll talk more about them and the film as we go along. There's not a lot to spoil about this movie, but if you don't want to know how it ends or whatever, go track down a copy and come back. You can probably see it on YouTube. We will still be here. Mike Sullivan, have you had you seen this movie before I asked you to be on this episode? I did. I actually uh, reviewed it for Shock Cinema, I, I want to say like about a decade ago. Wow. 
I kind of came to it late because um, I, I, I found out about it through Entertainment Weekly when they had like their lost media issue, and uh, that's how I came across it. Felt like uh, like a really stupid Wild Ninety. Like if Wild Ninety was just a little bit dumber. That's what that's what it felt like to me. Norman Mailer film. And yeah, I guess there was even a fight between well, not between the filmmaker and the crew or the actors. But at least there was no uh, no ear chewed off or whatever, like the Mailer movie, right? Like that's good. How about you, Andrew? I'm, I have a feeling that you've seen this before, maybe many times. Um, actually, believe it or not, I'd only seen it once, and it was sort of in passing. I didn't really pay that much attention to it as much as I have lately. Watching it for this, it's the perfect bro movie, I guess. It's, it's all you can really say. I don't know. It's it scares me to think that when I was in my younger years, I was probably a lot like some of these guys, and it makes me wince um, because I can see the realism of the awfulness. But um, yeah, it definitely captures uh, a certain aspect of the 90s that didn't necessarily need to be captured. When we talked last time, Mike Sullivan, we were talking a lot about Pulp Fiction and kind of the some of the damage in the wake of Pulp Fiction, the parody films, and we touched a little bit on you know some of those Tarantino-esque films that came out afterwards, and I would say things like The Usual Suspects, Swingers, you know, there were a lot of things that were made possible by the success of Pulp Fiction and by the success of the indie film movement, and those films were part of that. And I think that this movie wanted to be part of that, but then ultimately was shit-canned and wasn't able to be part of that. I don't know if it necessarily would have fit in with that level of filmmaking, but it definitely, it it reminds me of like some of the films that I saw that were made more by student filmmakers that were along those lines where it was just like, I am a huge fan of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and I want to do something like that. And hey, Kevin Smith did it with Clerks. Why can't I? Right. It seemed, it seemed very much in, in line with, um, not just because it was black and white and because it was cheap, but it was very much in line with things like, you know, like Clerks and She's Gotta Have It. And, um, you know, we had talked about, uh, you know, I just did a book on the Tarantino film that never officially got finished my best friend's birthday very much in line with that just less good than all of those uh, one tarantino thing i did want to point out here though um, i did want to make this horrible joke at some point but it's not really a joke it's just an observation as much as a lot of people winced at seeing leonardo dicaprio say the n-word 25 times in django unchained in a, in some ways it was equally as hard to hear him say bro eight thousand times in this movie well, it was harder for me to hear him say biatch like that two or three times right. he said it. Yeah, that was it was hard for me to, to stomach that rather than the, the 20 billion bros that were fired out throughout that movie. There's not a likable character in this movie. And by far, he's the least likable. And, you know, they talk about the since it's mostly improvisation, you know, the actors were afraid that people were going to think that the characters they were playing were themselves. But I think when you see things like videos of the deposition and things like that later of DiCaprio talking, it's very clear that they are very similar or were at that time. You know, I, I look, I'm not saying that they were all those same things, but I think there's a level of assholery that some of these characters possess that it seems pretty clear that probably some of the actors also possessed. When I was 20-whatever, I was probably just as much of an asshole as these guys are. And this is like holding up a mirror and being like, hey, 
you were in your young 20s, too, and you went to diners, and I don't think you were as abusive to the wait staff as these a-holes, but you were a pretty mean guy. And it's just, it's painful to watch this movie and think about those times and think about being just such a dick. I do have to say that it does capture that very well, but I'm not one to want to hang out with these guys for... 80 minutes or so, and just no one is compelling to me either. There's nobody who I actually give a shit about. There's no Mikey in this mix. You know, there, there, there's nobody that I'm hanging my hopes on and hope that they really make it, but nope. I just would not want to be in the same diner with these guys. I feel like I'd be the guy across the room that they're making fun of within earshot. I would too. And, and, and my question with this is because I can never really figure this out with the movie. Was it supposed to be kind of like a Todd Salons type thing where we're where we're not supposed to be on their side, where we're kind of like mocking them, like seeing what, you know, piles of garbage they are, or are we supposed to sort of see them, like see the humanity of these characters, you know, that, that at a certain point it kind of takes a corner where, you know, the secrets are revealed, and then there's like a Jenny Lewis song at the end strumming as they just like walk off into the morning. And it's like, well, what's the point of this? Are we supposed to be on their side? Are we supposed to hate them? I, I don't, like, it's not very clear. And it doesn't help that the characters are so ill-defined. You know, it just, I, I, I never knew what the film was trying to say with any of these characters. Well, I don't think the filmmakers did either, and I think that's the problem. I think there was really no vision of, you know, like as a writer, I write fiction and, and I try to, you know, not all of my characters are likable and not all of my, and my stuff doesn't always have happy endings. So I, I usually go about things like this with the opinion that things don't have to happen. They don't have to have a reason. But having said that, I did watch this film and think, what is the purpose of this film? What is the purpose of anything going on in here? I do think that the, the filmmakers had good intentions. But I'm not sure they knew what the hell the intentions were beyond putting out a movie and trying to get famous and make money. And and I hate to knock them, but every character in this is a douchebag. And I don't know that we're supposed to be on their side or not on their side. And I don't think the filmmakers knew or anybody really cared or put that much thought into it. And I'd be really surprised to find out that there weren't a lot of drugs being done at the time this film was being made. Because this just seems like the most wrongheaded from the A to Z movie. You know, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but, you know, I've seen a lot of shit. I, I write for Shock Cinema. I watch the same shit that you do, Mike Sullivan. I, you know, yeah. and it's like, but but usually I feel like there's some sort of purpose or some sort of vision to it. And this felt so loose. Like, I, I just yeah. don't think there was a vision to it whatsoever. Yeah, you're right. It does feel like it was supposed to be maybe a calling card. I mean, just even hearing about some of the making of the movie where it's like, well, we were going to do this, but then we ended up doing this other thing. But then we changed our minds and we did this third thing and we decided that we'd just improvise and you've got fairly decent actors in here. I mean, you've got at least three very strong actors in here. And I'm saying by that Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire and Jeremy Sisto. Now, unfortunately, Jeremy Sisto is kind of off to the side. So we don't get to see a whole lot of him. And then there's a lot of other people where I'm like, okay, I'm, I, I kind of know who that is. That's a familiar face. Like Amber Benson. I'm like, okay, Amber Benson, that's Willow's girlfriend from Buffy. I know her. 
Ethan Supley. Okay, yeah, it's the the goth guy from the Butterfly Effect. The last I saw him, he was the doing like a Harry Knowles impersonation in Fanboys. But other people, it's like I had to look up who Kevin Connolly was, and I was just like, okay, it makes sense that he's on Entourage. It also makes sense that he directed Gotti. I wonder how many you know directorial cues he learned from R.D. Rob. And I say that as a joke because apparently John Schindler, the line producer, actually is the director of the movie. As they say, he directed the director. But all joking aside, as bad as this movie may be in places, I think it's a better directed film than Gotti. But I don't think Connolly's a bad actor. And yes, I am guilty of having watched Honorage. And it's it's one of those things where you later on, everybody admits that, you know, it's like when Vanilla Ice's album came out and everybody bought it. And then later, everybody was like, who bought that? Nobody admits to it anymore. Well, not, I think Honorage is like that for a lot of us. But, but Kevin Connolly is a decent actor. But let's talk about the performances in here. Is that OK? Do you want to do that? I mean, those are all over the place. I mean. For me, Toby Maguire, who had two different shoots because apparently he wanted to outdo DiCaprio. I mean, he's decent in other things like, you know, the Ang Lee stuff and, you know, other things. But he's terrible in this, in my uh, estimation. Like, I, I thought he was awful. I thought he was not the shittiest actor. The shittiest actor is that guy we don't know who he is that's in those scenes with where he's just trying to follow around DiCaprio. Like oh, he's right. Yeah, that, like, young punk kid, whoever that is. I have a theory that he was, like, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's turtle. Right. There you go. I can see that. I can, too. You know, they have a decent cast here, but it's just so ill-used. And the thought that they would have these guys improvise, the only scenes that feel real to me, and we'll get into this later, I guess, when we talk about, you know, the behind-the-scenes shit, but the only scenes that feel real to me are the ones where DiCaprio is, look, there's, there's one scene really, I think he does a decent job where he reveals the stuff about his father. But basically the scenes where he's an asshole, and look, I think I'm going to be frank with you, and I have gotten shit for this. I think DiCaprio is the finest actor of his generation, but I do think that he was at least at that time a huge dick. I don't know. I can't confirm it. Things I've heard a hundred times. But the fact that, well, I'll just say it. The fact that the scene where he's, so effective being such an asshole to Amber Benson's character. And the fact that we later find out that was real, that he was really mm. trying to drive her off the set with that performance per quote unquote performance. I think it's telling, I think the real DiCaprio at that age. And he was like, what 20, you know, you throw any kind of success at a 20 year old. Who's probably already a dick because he's 20. He's a 20 year old male. It's only going to make him more of a dick. I don't know. I thought he was decent in it. Even if he was just being himself, but some of the performances are kind of suck. And and I thought that um, Tobey Maguire sucked. Tobey Maguire is especially bad. Like, Tobey Maguire seems like he's auditioning to play Screech and Saved by the Bell, The New Generation. He's doing, like, a very odd, squeaky nerd voice in it. You, my friend Jeremy. Relax, bro. Open up. Try some different foods. It's all good in the hood. There's like a like a broad gawkiness to what he's doing, which I don't understand what he's doing, which is why sometimes I don't know if this movie's trying to be a comedy. I, I don't know what it's trying to be. My, my one problem with the big reveal with DiCaprio is like everything in this movie, it just comes out of nowhere. It, 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 right. it develops out of nothing. And it's following the scene where he has like buck teeth in his mouth and he's doing... 
he's doing, let's say, a very not fair impression of someone that's you know mentally challenged. You know, it's it's right on it's right on the heels of this thing that it seems like he was just dicking around with the camera running, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey guys, uh, yeah, my dad died. Like right on top of this, you know, boo 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 scene. It just it that that didn't work for me. You know, just the fact that it's just built on top of this bridge of shit. Yeah, he jumped from what's eating Gilbert Grape to this boy's life in two seconds flat. I thought the performance in that scene was good, but that was about it for that scene. And not only does that scene come out of nowhere, that reveal, but literally like he's sad for about a second. And then two seconds later, he's trying to screw this girl in the back room of the bar. And frankly, the way these characters act, I was pleasantly surprised and thankful that he didn't try to rape her because this is very much a broy frat boy atmosphere where let's be honest those things and when i say i acted like that i didn't act like that i didn't rape anybody but the way his character acts i was frankly surprised it didn't go that to that level and i thought it was kind of interesting that she kind of i'm not saying it's a it's a necessarily well done thing but i did think it was interesting that she kind of dresses him down and we we see for a second that he's really this i don't know just this lost child that i think she says you know because he wants to be a badass but it's all a front I, it's not really perfectly constructed or anything, but but I, I don't think that that's a, a terrible thing. But just the transitions are are really bad because there are none. Speaking of lost child, I, I thought it was really weird that every time, whenever a man would approach Jenny Lewis in this movie, they're like, "You look like a little girl. Look at you over there. You're like a little lost girl." And then like Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio later on picks her up by saying like picks her up at the bar by basically saying, you look like a strawberry shortcake doll. It's, it's like, it's like this weird, like fetishization of like this, or like childlike qualities. It's like, ugh. it's yucky because it's like, yeah, you look like a child. And then five minutes later, I'm going to try to have sex with you. It's gross. And they made this big deal about her red hair. And I'm like, guys, you know, you're shooting in black and white, right? I have to say at times the black and white photography looks actually decent they're doing this camera move like crazy because i'd say like the first 20 minutes of this movie is all over the fucking place and we're being introduced to the characters we don't know who the fuck these people are like you said we never really get a beat on toby mcguire and it's not helped by him being at this weird art house cafe thing where they're doing like jazz performance art kind of stuff and he's talking to this girl and at times the performers that's the, that's like the gap ad from the 90s you know it just it just it's it so dumb to me that scene Half after me the I'm going to ask you something. Uh, will you come with me to meet my friends at a diner very soon? A little later. Now? Tonight, a little later. Um, no, I can't. You can't or you won't? <laughs> no, I will, but I can't. What? I, I can't. I, I, have, I have to do my hair, actually. I know that sounds sort of... Well, I have to do my roots. I have to wake up early. I'll probably wake up at like 8. I'll get up 
at six just to get up at six because you gotta get up at eight. So you mean you'll spend the night and then wake me up at six, but then we'll sleep another I mean, two hours? You know, if you want me to spend the night, I might be able to work that out. It was so cringy. And at times the singer's right behind him, and at times she's not. So I'm like, okay, are they purposefully doing these jump cuts? I'm not really sure. But anyway, about 20 minutes in, we get to Don's Plum, and we get these guys and gals sitting down at a table. And then I'd say, what, 80% of the movie after that, maybe 90%, is all taking place at this table, other than these cutaways to the bathroom where we're getting... I guess like inner monologues from all of these different characters, all the way from the waitress and Don himself, who's barely a character to pretty much anybody that we see on screen is going to get at least a little bit of inner monologue in this bathroom. See, I thought it was an inner monologue, but at certain points people get up to go to the bathroom and then talk to the mirror. So I'm like, are are, are all these people just, running off to the toilet and then talking to the mirror. At some, at some point, I just wanted, like, a John Polito type to open, like, a toilet door stall and go, would you shut the fuck up? I'm trying to shit. You know, something right. like that. In those scenes where they're talking to the mirror, you know, and I should have paid more attention. I didn't think about it until later. And then again, we'll get to some of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff later. This ties in. So when we're seeing all of those scenes, which feel like fluff to me, they feel like filler to make it round out to be a full-length film. Now, my question is, did DiCaprio have talking to the mirror scenes? Because when I was thinking back on it, I couldn't remember. Everybody else does, but does he? Because if he does does not, I don't think he does, which might go a long way to defend his saying that he never knew it was going to be a feature. Everyone else, I think most of the others know it's going to be a feature. And that is, again, the thing we'll talk about later. But I think that that may go a little bit of a way to defend that maybe DiCaprio really didn't know they were going to make this into a feature because when they did the reshoots, DiCaprio's not there. Apparently not only the reshoots, but maybe these talking into the mirror bullshit have nothing to do with anything monologue scenes in the mirror. But that was just a, a, an observation that kind of came to me a little while ago. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Like the reshoots. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember him being in the bathroom, but I'm almost tempted to go check it out uh, just to see if that's the case. But if it is, it is very limited, especially compared to some of the other characters who are in there a ton. And like I said, Don, who is not really a character, gets a lot of stuff in that bathroom, as does the waitress. Of all the characters, I said no character is likable, but I'd have to say of any character that I'm close to liking, it's possibly the waitress. And she's nothing. She's absolutely nothing in this movie. She's just, she gets abuse heaped on her. And yeah, she's getting screwed over as far as her shifts. She basically doesn't want to come in anymore when these a-holes are there. So I can completely empathize with her on that stuff. That's about it. Th- that's the, her whole character arc right there. Well, the thing with the, the, the waitress ties in with an observation. Another observation I want to make, this film strikes me as the characters are all very misogynistic. They're homophobic. There's toxic masculinity from A to Z. Like all of those things that, you know, we associate, we might say stereotypical with the frat boy image, but I mean, that's what we're seeing on stay on here. It seems a lot of times like the females are only there for two things. There are three things. Eye candy to make out with each other 
Um, I guess there is that fantasy wish fulfillment bullshit where the studio exec wants to apparently have sex with Tobey Maguire. I don't think that's Tobey Maguire. Yeah, it was it was Connolly. I couldn't remember. See, that's how much the characters run together for me, you know. And but but that made no sense. And then the other thing is to have shit heaped upon them, to have sexist bullshit heaped upon them. That feels like the only reason any of them are there. Who would bring their date? They actually are bringing dates to this dinner where they all sit around and say sexist mean shit. Like this doesn't make sense even in the realm of that yeah, I, world. I don't get that. I, I didn't. I didn't understand it either. Why women had to be there? And like that was the crux of the beginning. Like we got like Toby or Toby McGuire trying desperately to get Marissa Rabisi, who's in that and gone in like thirty seconds. That this movie, like I'm, I'm just watching it. I'm like, why is it? I mean, because it's there's no need for them to be there. There's absolutely unless it's sort of like the point of this was just to bring them there to break them. Like that was like it's some sort of weird. MRA type, like 95 MRA type thing where they're just like, well, we need women there to just throw glasses at them because there's no other reason for them to be there. Like the dinner game, you know, they're just going to bring them to dinner so that they can yeah. insult them and berate them. It's like a, a bad take on, like a sexist bad take on the dinner game. Right, exactly, yeah. I'm glad you could remember the name of that movie. I could not remember it. And I was just like, isn't there a movie like that? I was thinking right. of uh, River Phoenix and Lily Taylor in uh, Dogfight. We have a tradition in the Marines. The rules are simple. Each of the guys puts in 75 bucks. You set up a meeting place and time. Excuse me. Hi. And then you go out and see what you can bring back. I'm surprised nobody's remade Don's Plum yet. Like, <laughs> don't give them any ideas. Don't give anybody ideas. I was going to say, too, when it comes to that table, I get a little nauseous just from the camera moves because they're trying to do that Tarantino slash beginning of Roseanne thing where the camera is going around the table and it just keeps going around and around and around to the point where I'm just like, please just please pull up those dolly tracks. I do not need to see this camera go around one more time. And I don't know if it's necessarily an effect or if it is an effect of us seeing this like on YouTube or whatever, but the over lighting of the table kind of, you know, the light all bouncing off of it. It's almost like what Spike Lee likes to do these days. It's a little much. So, and again, I'm not sure if that's a mistake or if that's an effect that they're going for. Well, maybe they felt like they spent money on that, on that track, you know, for the, for the dolly. So they wanted to get their money's worth, you know, cause they, they certainly try. I mean, it's telling that the, uh, the first scene in the movie is, uh, Jeremy Sisto kicking Amber Benson out of a car. You know, right. I think that, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much the movie in a microcosm, you know? We don't get any real reasons for why any of these people are shitty to these women, really. Just sort of that they're there most of the time. And it's like, yeah, there's something that precipitated the thing with Jeremy Sisto, but the way that they're acting, like, neither one of them are particularly emoting in that first scene. So we don't really know what the hell has possibly happened. It just begins with him looking kind of bored and being like, oh, I'm tired of you, and you have to leave, and he's trying to kick her out the door. It, it's so ridiculous. You, you brought up a good thing with the reshoots because I was re when I was reading this today about how they had like Toby McGuire asked for scenes to be removed, and that the fact that the movie's only eighty nine minutes. Do you think we're actually missing scenes in this, and that's why things are disjointed, or it just always was naturally sort of incompetent? 
like the joke says, I'm not, I wouldn't say we're missing them, but they may be gone. And you're right as far as that weird WTF wish fulfillment scene of Connolly and that producer lady. I kept waiting for that to turn into a joke. Like the entire time I was waiting for a punchline, like she comes onto him so hard. And I was like, okay, she's angling for a threesome with her right. and Connolly. Yeah. I thought it was going to be some cuckold thing because she tells the guy, I really like him. Yeah. Nothing ever happens. Like, what is that? I, I have no idea why they even thought that should be there. Like, it, it's just, it doesn't seem logical. It's weird. It serves no purpose. And then he doesn't go, does he? He doesn't even go, does he? Like, Well, no, the, we have like that weird half a scene after the credits, like the credits start up and then we have like three, four extra little bits in there. And he ends up calling her on the phone and we never get a resolution as far as like what happened with that. So it's like, okay, uh, again, I'm waiting for a punchline. I never made it that far. I, when it came to the credits, I was happy to see them each time I watched the movie and I turned it right off. So I missed out. I missed that. And I missed the dedications apparently that were there. Um, I missed all that apparently good stuff. I didn't know it was going to be like a Marvel and MCU movie where there was going to be, you know, other stuff in the, in the end there. Well, that's why you should have stuck around to the credits. Like at the end, like, uh, Samuel L. Jackson comes out of Nick Fury and he just says, are you going to dick slap me? Are you going to dick slap me? Huh? Huh? <laughs> you know, you want to. Yeah. I haven't heard dick slap, um, uh, maybe ever. And definitely not as much as this movie. Well, and that was a very misogynistic thing there, too, because it's one of those things where it's almost like she's sort of begging to be treated. I don't want to say raped, but it's like she's pushing him to sort of treat her like shit. And and then he's like, you know, I'm, I'm just over it. Like, I, I'm, I'm just it, the, the motivations of all of the characters are at least suspect, suspect to say the least. It's just fucking weird. And it's like it makes me wonder if when the because clearly even within the improvisation, the, the structure of this was put together by men. And I'm not specifically trying to bash anybody. I'm not going to say I'm not bashing them, but I'm not specifically bashing anybody. But my thought is, is that beyond all these quote unquote pussy, these posse was getting, did any of them stop to take time to figure out how women work or what their thought processes actually are? Because the way that these women act are fucking weird and ridiculous. Oh yeah. 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 They are not women. They are like, I wouldn't even say they're cartoon characters. They're just like weird mannequins that can speak. They're masturbatory material for these guys is what it is. Like it's their fantasy wish fulfillment of what may, but who knows what kind of women were rushing up on these guys back then. Like, you know, I don't know. They seem like anomalies to me for sure. I mean, you star in Pleasantville, you're going to get all the poontang you want. This was very unpleasantville like, was it not? What if he'd like gotten, he did dick slapped her. Like she asked, and then all of a sudden, everything turned color, like in Pleasantville. Like if the dick slap, the dick slap created the color change of the world of Don's Plum. That would have been, that would have been neat. I did have a favorite character though. Scott Bloom's character was my favorite because his his character is clearly the dumbest and most poorly constructed. He he has two like two of my favorite scenes in the movie. He just suddenly has a copy of um, Brave New World. But she just starts reading at the table, like as if he's Bugs Bunny, and it just materializes out of thin air. And he's just reading Brave New World. There's a line early on where, like, I guess Jenny Lewis like finds a cockroach, I guess like in a cigarette case or something. He has a line. He goes, "There's a cockroach in my cigarette case." 
That's life. Right. That's yeah, life. I love that one. <laughs> Why is Sage, you know, administering this advice of that's life? That was laughable. Is he the guy who suddenly turns gay in the movie? He just he just turns bisexual at one point. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 I, and and, and for, for no reason, like, I, I'm not saying that people are gay or bisexual for a reason, but I'm saying in the context of this film, I don't understand why that decision at that moment is made at this table where people are being shitty to each other. And clearly, if he knows DiCaprio's character at all, he knows he's a homophobic asshole. And just an asshole in general, but a homophobic asshole. I, I just, it's its so weird. And then he, isn't, there are parts where he brags about, like, he can get his cock sucked, or he can suck cock. Like, the, the scene is just bizarre. This movie feels like a joke structured by a child. You know, it's like, and then he's gay. And then they're lesbians, and then my dad died, and then everyone got dick slapped, you know? The logic within the movie The Room, which I'm now writing about, almost makes more sense. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, or, or I expect Tommy Wiseau to walk out and go, you know. Anyway, how is your sex life? Nothing in the movie <laughs> makes any sense, but the that's life line sounds very Tommy Wiseau. That cancer reveal is just on point with the, you know, my dad shot himself i'm just like what the fuck man and then yeah it never comes back again it's just as much of relevance as that okay yeah i've got cancer they get totally aggro and they're fighting in the parking lot and i'm like okay i don't know why whatever was said ended up being worse than other things that were said and they have to hug it out this is two hours uh, or an hour and a half or whatever of people just saying mean, insulting, awful, horrid shit. But then this line that's benign, like, I can't even tell you what it was, that ends up pushing this to blows, it, it's so weird and nonsensical. How was that the line? Or maybe maybe that was just, I mean, what made that a bridge too far? Or was this just the straw that broke the camel's back? I don't know. but And I don't think they know either. What's, what's the craziest thing about that scene, which is just this very, very intense shoving match, is if you notice in the credits, it, it required a stunt coordinator. This very—I'm not kidding. It's in the—it's like he's right after like the the cast. It's the stunt coordinator. I'm like, you got to be kidding me! This like spastic shoving match needed required a stunt coordinator. Might have gone too far. In the room, they had uh, you know uh, fight coordinator. It was just uh, Greg Sestero, but. But uh, they had him do fight coordinator. Yeah, what was funny in that, you know, they'll fight for a second and then they're like, they're hugging. It's kind of like this. They fight and then they hug it out. That's what guys do. And then they didn't, but they didn't break out a football. So at least there, there was no tuxedos or no football at the dunce plum. So there's that going on. No, but they burn uh, Kevin Connolly's bowling shirt. I think that's kind of like along the lines of that. If they were going to get rid of the shirt, they could have given it to the producer when he shows up for his cameo and he has no shirt on. Like, why did they give it to him, you know? Like, him and, and uh, Stephanie just show up out of the blue for no reason. And, I mean, they did have to have somebody on set for safety when Amber Benson was beating up that Jeep. And not doing a very good job of it. Like, the window, like, she's hitting it with an aluminum bat, and the window's just, like, you know, ching. Like, I, I would think that a five-year-old could beat the hell out of a vehicle better than Amber Benson. They really needed to get somebody from Street Fighter Two out there. They did. They need to get, like, a... A double, like a stunt double for that. Of all the things that we've talked about this whole time, I have to say the most egregious thing about this entire movie is 
somebody having the gall to do a ska cover of Manamana. That comes out of nowhere. It hurts. It really hurts me, baby. I, I miss yes, that. What scene is that in, Mike? That's just like suddenly out of nowhere when they're it's hanging around the diner. That's it. You know, there's no nothing that motivates it. It's just that long scene of just music, and we're just looking at them. It's almost montage-like, just sitting around looking at each other and laughing. You know, the movie feels almost swingers-esque, but like in a, like a really bad swingers. And and I feel bad because I know that you know Dale Wheatley's going to hear this interview, but I, and I do feel bad because I know that these guys, some of them, you know, at least the producers, put their heart into it. But there are moments of this where you just you stand back and you go, "What the fuck am I watching?" You know, and and I'm sure the intentions were good, but so, but I maybe it was some of it was the ska, some of it was sort of the broy attitude. Uh, there was a part, at least one person had a, a like a bowling shirt on, and it kind of made me think of Swingers. But like, if all of the characters were the Vince Vaughn character, but on asshole steroids, like ten times more yeah. asshole and less funny. Yeah, I haven't gone back and watched Swingers in the last. 20 years and i remember really liking that and liking parts of it quite a bit but i don't know if i still would it kind of it scares me to go back to that one i loved it back then and you know and and when i interviewed favreau i was so excited but again i don't know if i would would be that excited these days you know i mean it's one of those some of those things from a long time ago are better left not viewed today and in that same vein maybe don's plum is one of those well, that's the thing. Here it is, 2019. This movie kind of comes out in 2001, even though it feels like it was made at a different era. You know, because they talk about, um, in that New York Post piece about like, oh yeah, Leo was fresh off of this and, uh, Toby was fresh off of that. Well, I think it was 1996 was when it was, was uh, actually filmed. So had this come out in 96 or 97, I don't think we'd be talking about this today unless we were just saying like, oh, remember these weird movies? But since it has that cachet of being a quote-unquote forbidden film or unreleased, even though it was released, it's an unreleased film, here we are still talking about this. And it's like, it's so unfair because we could probably take, I don't know, dozens of movies released in 96, 97 that were made under similar conditions, and we would be just as mean about these things. And I feel like we're being a little mean, but at the same time, it's like some of it is deserved. If this was released in 96, I guarantee you it'd be right next to Adam Sandler's going overboard in Walmart, uh, like $3 bins. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. This is like, like cutting class. Yeah, exactly. It, I think I, I was telling, I was telling some friends of mine about this. Like if Leonardo DiCaprio just let this thing slide, if he let it slide, it would have been released. It would have been forgotten and no one would have cared. You know, it, I don't think it, it, cause I, I don't know if you want to go into that, but he felt like it would have damaged his career. I don't think it really would have at that point. It would have just been go- released, forgotten. And that was it. But you know, now he, he turned it into day. The clown cried. He basically turned it into day. The right. clown cried. If they would let it go forward, you know, like everybody talks about all of the, all of the praise that, like, supposedly people liked it early on. We don't really know. But the, when the offers came in, it was later after these people had made it. So my point is, is would this movie have been beloved before any of those people were the people that they went on to become? I mean, because, you know, at that time, even though DiCaprio had been nominated for an Oscar, he wasn't really that big of a deal. Not yet. If this had been pre-Titanic, pre-any of that other shit, I doubt there would have even been that, you know, Miramax coming out of the woodwork to make an offer on this. 
I'm not saying there were no bad Miramax movies because in the nineties, you know, we talk about a lot of the good Miramax movies, but there were some shit shitty ones in there. And I'm, I don't yeah. know that this one's better or worse than some of those, but I'm just saying that it, it seems to me that basically the cachet that this movie brings is the cast. But at that time, nobody gave a shit about any of these people. Not really, not to the degree that they do now, not that they're the, the degree they did in 2001 or whenever. So, you know, would this have seen the light of day? Would this have been a real thing or would it have done the festival circuit and died out? Yeah, that's how I think it would have been. All right, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the co-producer and co-writer of Don's Plum, Dale Wheatley, right after these brief messages. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories. And everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertreestories.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld. 
The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Tell me about you. I'm very curious what your backstory is and how you decided to get into the business. You know, I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, It's a place that, you know, uh, that I love dearly, but that few people visit (laughs) because it's it's uh it's a hard and and uh, and cold town uh in the middle of uh Canada not far from Fargo and so any any anybody who's seen Fargo would know a lot about where I come from we sound and look the same if you will it's a cold uh and kind of dark place and uh both my brother and I kind of stayed indoors and just worked on creatives most of our lives and so I did a lot of writing and a lot of different you know creative singing and whatever else and I think around 18 years old, I decided to get into stand-up, and that's kind of where I started to really step forward into the filmmaking world in terms of even thinking about film was uh, when I began stand-up comedy. It was like 1988, actually. I did comedy for a few years, maybe about four years, and then um, I kind of quit because a guy I opened up for told me to run for, for my life unless I wanted to you know, live a life of of terrible, uh, you know, sort of loneliness and depression. <laughs> it was the saddest thing I ever heard, man. His show was amazing. I mean, I was busting laughing. And then, uh, you know, I had a good show also that night. And, and so, uh, he said, you know, stick around, let's have some drinks. And he just confessed this life of loneliness and depression that was so effective that I called my agent up the following day and I was like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. So I quit comedy on the spot because I did not want to be. The result of this guy's life. And I, and I felt as funny as him that day. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, this is a motherfucker headliner. And I feel as funny as this dude, which means I could be on this dude's path. And little did I know that might've been the happier road. What do you decide to do after that? I was gathering up what to do next. Acting was definitely something on my mind. And, um, but, I, but I, I ended up, you know, do you know who Anthony Robbins is? He's a self-help guru. <clears throat> The guy with the huge hands and the big smile. Big smile and huge hands, yeah. I hypnotize you with my teeth and you pay me money. So Anthony Robbins had these franchises throughout Canada, and I joined on and with Anthony Robbins and Associates in Vancouver. I was helping facilitate and uh, and ultimately sell self-help seminars, and, and it was a it's kind of a weird and great time. Um, but anyway, I was doing that while kind of, contemplating what to do next and that's when i um i in this sort of wild domino of serendipitous events ended up meeting jeremy sisto i don't know if you know who that is yep six feet under yeah exactly right and clueless and such things so i met him and we just um became uh fast friends and in a sort of series of more serendipitous events or just just fucking weird time but i ended up hanging out with him and Jeff Goldblum one night and uh, we were doing some improving and, and Sisto said, they all should come to LA. Don't you think? And Goldblum was like, absolutely. You are a talented dude. You should go to LA. And you know, when you're sitting around like, uh, like in, this is 1994 or 93 and Jeff Goldblum is a, is a, he's an icon. I mean, he's an absolute icon and, and Jeremy Sisto, an upcomer and, you know, also, in that movie was uh, Alicia Silverstone and I was hanging out with her and it was just this whole weird, wild thing where I just suddenly got thrust into this world that I'd been thinking about. It was like made manifest before me in some weird and fucking wild way. And so 
uh, after Jeff Goldblum says, yeah, man, moved to L.A., I, it, you know, it sunk in. And about two or three weeks after that, I emptied my bank account. I stuffed the cash in my pocket. I threw a bunch of clothes in a backpack, threw them over my shoulder, and I got in a fucking Greyhound, I shit you not, and I moved to Los Angeles that day. It's kind of the epitome of the American dream, and I had this sort of romantic notion for life. I love the romantic stuff in life, and so it just all added up very quickly for me, and I just went, you know, man, I'm going to jump on a Greyhound, I'm going to get the fuck out of here, I'm going to go to Los Angeles, and I'm going to give it a go. And that's what I did in 1994, and it wasn't soon after that, in fact, I got, I'd gotten like culture shock or whatever. And Sista was like, let's go out and let's fucking go to a party, man. I know where the party tonight. And so he came and he picked me up. Uh, and this is just maybe after a week after being in Los Angeles. And, uh, and we went to a, a guy's house called Jay Ferguson. And that was about a week after I arrived in Los Angeles. And that was the night I met Leonardo DiCaprio among others, Toby McGuire, et cetera. Yeah. Cause all those guys, they hung out together back then. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> well, at that, I mean, that night I met Artie Rob. Who directed on Slum? I met um, Toby. I met Leo. I met Jay Ferguson. I met Scott Bloom. I believe. I think I made. I, I, I probably met him that night. It was a really wild night. Shannon Doherty. That was weird. It was just weird. Not because she's weird. It was weird because like I fucking. She was like a big, huge, huge star. And like two weeks before that, I was selling seminar tickets to Tony Robbins. You know. And now I'm like at a party going, what's up? And she's like, what's up? I'm like, wow, this is so weird. Where do I put my beer? So I know the life of an actor is not an easy one. How was it for you being out there? It was terrifying. I quickly learned that if I'm going to be an actor, I've got to figure out a path different than sort of the normal path because I just froze in auditions. Like, I mean, mouth dries out, lipstick to teeth. You know what I mean? Tongues like slipping through. I can't out of my mind. No, no such thing as a character because I'm, I'm barely a shell of my own self. So uh, I couldn't audition very well. Uh, I'm an okay actor. And I think if I really got into it, that I could be even a very good actor, but I was not a good auditioner. And that was uh that was a big, big, it was a big problem for me for sure. It was a weird thing. So clueless was actually called originally no worries. And it was set up at Fox. I had, a couple of friends in the movie at the time or who were supposed to be cast in the movie. Oh no, I had one, which is Artie Rob. Artie Rob was supposed to be Elton when it was at Fox. It got moved to Paramount. Paramount picked up the option. Fox dropped it. Paramount picked up the option. They renamed it Clueless and they recast it. Uh, and it turned out that Jeremy Sisto ended up getting cast as Elton instead of Artie Rob. Isn't that wild? So Jeremy Sisto got me fucking amazing audition to play the Paul Red role. And I got to meet like Amy Heckerly and all the producers. And I walked in and I completely shit the bed. It was terrible. It was horrible. You know, it was horrible. He never got me another audition. So did you end up getting many parts out there? No, uh, no, I didn't. Well, what happened was, well, that's not true. Jeremy did recommend for, for another role. He recommended me for the role of Jason in Last Respects. And Last Respects was a short film that, that Leonardo DiCaprio was going to star in, along with all of his buddies, including Tobey Maguire, Kevin Connolly, Scott Bloom, and directed by Artie Robb. He got me that audition. I did a couple of other shorts uh, before that. I think I did all right in them. Nothing spectacular, but all right. I, I also don't think I was terrible in Don's Plum. You know, I'm not, I'm not a notable performance, but it's certainly um, 
an okay performance. But I didn't do much acting because one of the short films I did was an improv film called Sessions. It was a one camera, 16 millimeter short film directed by Marissa Ryan, written and directed by Marissa Ryan. And it was improvisational. And she built the scenarios and she built the characters. And then she gave us the sort of sandbox in which we would like play and define the details of our story for this outline. And I loved it, man. I freaked out. I, 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 I couldn't believe how much fun it was. And the fun I was having was observing how much fun they were having on the other side of the camera with us. We were just at that point, at that point, we became like paint to a canvas. It was fucking awesome. And so I just fell in love with the other side of the camera in that moment. Like I, 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 I realized in that moment where I really wanted to be and it wasn't where I was, which was in front of the camera. Um, as enjoyable as that is, and I, I, I mean, I just acted in my, in, in, in this film I just produced uh, a couple years ago. I, I, I did a small role in that. It's a Christian film. I'm not even Christian, you know? So I still love the, the art form of acting, but I fell in love with behind the scenes really on that. It was a one day shoot. And then on that day, I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be on the other side of that camera. And so, you know, these events kind of took place that led me to, to, to have the opportunity to pitch Don's Plum as a fully improvised film and where I could apply amazing experience because I, you know, between the time that Don's Plum was born or, you know, conceived by that time, that short film called Sessions, I had, you know, shot, they cut, I had gone to see it. And so I, I, I knew everything that they did wrong. And that may sound a little bit harsh, but it was, I was really what I was looking for. I was like, what, how can this film be brilliant? And, and, and it was those principles and those like ideas that I kind of gleaned from that experience and then applied to Don's Plum later. So what was that moment? What brought about Don's Plum? How did that idea come to you? Well, that film, Last Respects, that I told you about, to summarize a little bit of that story was that uh, I had auditioned for that film and I completely blew it. I mean, just in classic fucking Dale Wheatley form, I just froze. I, my the fucking saliva disappeared. It was just unbelievably bad. And I just completely blew the audition. And later, I was just kind of hanging around the periphery and Leo and RD are talking. And I overhear Leonardo DiCaprio say to Artie Rob, he says, I can't make this film, dude. The script is not good enough. And I'm an Academy Award nominee, bro. I can't, I can't, I cannot make this. I'm a writer, man. You know, and I knew I blew that audition and I knew my opportunity was gone. But I'm a writer and I'm a good writer. And I, and I heard that and I was like, oh, fuck, I, that's a problem I can solve. Uh, once Leo and Artie kind of split up in their conversation, I walked up to Artie and I was like, Brother, I can help. I can help the situation, and uh, I offered my services as, as a writer. So we met subsequent to that a couple of times. I became attached to that as a writer. We worked on it for months and months and months. Fast forward to a read through of the draft we're ready to present, and that read through takes place at Leonardo DiCaprio's house on Ambrose in Los Angeles. And uh, we get around the table and we do the read through of the script. A new person is cast in the role of Jason. That was the role that I blew in my audition. And off we go. We do the reading and Leo passes emphatically. He's like, I'm out. I, I, this script is still not good enough for me. The producer that we'd attached at that, at that point to help raise the money to do the short, a guy called David Stutman, then followed Leo into his bedroom and pitched him 
a film that he had started to write. He had written the first 10 pages of called the Saturday night club, which was, or which what, which was what became Don's plum. And Leo kind of responded to the idea. David then ran and kind of pitched it to Connolly, McGuire and Bloom. They all kind of responded to the idea. RD was down with it. I was fucking mad. Uh, I was so upset. I was upset at Leo. Leo kind of mocked the script. We'd worked very hard on it. I understand he didn't fucking buy it, but I was like really upset at him. So uh, I was not as uh, responsive initially, but then RD came to me and he was like, bro, I really want you on this movie. And I said, well, look, man, if we can do 100% improvisation, because the talk at the time, what David Stutman pitched was that we would do partial improv, partial scripted. And Leo had just torn the script apart. I had all this great experience having shot sessions, the short film. I was like, man, let's fucking, if it's all improv, I'm in. If it's not all improv, I'm out. Uh, we had some arguing about that with David Stutman. We brought it back to the actors, meaning Leo, Toby, Scott, and uh, Connolly. And all of them were like, fuck yeah, we love the all improv. We're all in. Talked about creating a, you know, a, a rehearsal process um, that would, you know, lead up to to the shoot and um that was it man we were the ball was in motion can you fucking believe that like here i am i'm in winnipeg freezing cold don't know anybody high school dropout moved out of his house at 15 years old and i find my way to vancouver where i meet a dude in a crazy bit of fucking serendipitous circumstances that leads me to fucking moving to hollywood and fucking less than a year after that i'm producing leonardo DiCaprio and writing for the fucking guy Jeez. How old are you at this point? I'm 24. That is wild. It's unbelievable, man. It's an unbelievable event. I remember like sitting with my editor, one of, one of my assistant editors, while we were cutting Don's Plum, and he looked at me, and I do, I had this, I had this innate ability in filmmaking. Like, it was really fun to watch, dude. Like, I could do shit that I shouldn't be able to do. It was like I was born for the shit. It was, it was really wild. And this editor, this assistant editor, made note of it. He was like, where the fuck did you come from, man? Like, what the fuck? And I just told him, and I just basically told him the story I told you. And I just remember him looking at me and just nodding his head and going, that is the fucking real American dream right there, dude. That's like the real thing. It was like an amazing thing to be living. Like at the time, I was like, it's true, man. I'm like, I'm from Winnipeg, dude. I'm from the north end of Winnipeg. It's where I was born. I was born in the worst fucking neighborhood in Winnipeg. Uh, I come from a very, very, very poor background to have fought my way through all of that, you know, sort of socioeconomic disadvantage and, and, and so much more to finally land myself in this position was really, truly an American dream uh, that I thought people, everyone could be proud of because it was, it was fucking genuine, man. It was really special. That idea that David Stutman originally pitched the whole Saturday night club. What was that? Four friends meet up at a diner every Saturday night, and they have to bring a chick. As I say, it was 10 pages, but it was all basically a dialogue at, at, at the table. So there was the setting, which was a diner setting, which I loved because it, it invoked immediately two like, uh, very influential films for me. Um, My Dinner with Andre, uh, which was this really marvelous, amazing film from the 80s that um, took minimalistic filmmaking to a whole different level, in my view. And then the movie Diner, which I felt uh, delivered a depth in relationship and character that is that was hard to uh, to hard to match at that point in time. So 
it was like this perfect thing for me, man. I was like, wow, there's just, I had two influences. I could stack on it right away. Uh, and then I had this experience with sessions to go in and, and take these, these 10 pages and really start uh, forming something uh, that, you know, felt meaningful. How did you go about getting funding for this? That was all David Stutman, man. I didn't do anything. I am the most incompetent. Like, you do not want me on your film when it comes to money, bro. I'm not that guy. I'm I'm definitely the creative producer. I I had nothing to do with the funding. And I think, you know, probably that was a, definitely a weakness, a, a weak, sort of a weak spot overall. Just the whole business of Don's Plum was, you know, wasn't well done. Like, when it comes to the business of your movie, like, you definitely want to keep me away. But if, if your director needs help, I'm your guy. So how did you and R.D. Rob work together? During the sort of writing of, of Last Respects, R.D. and I developed a very special chemistry, like a very, very, very special chemistry. The kind of chemistry that, like, you know, makes great bands. We just connected perfectly. And uh, there was this ebb and flow of idea and contrast. And it was just this great collaboration born out of this, screenplay where rd really did create these the space for me to really expand and grow in dialogue and just experimentation with writing and stuff so that was it really it was like last respects and then there was this again i think a collaboration that to this day is just so you know deep and and, and special and could have really i think made some great films and if it were left uh unhindered so once you get the green light to go ahead with this project, I'm very curious how you went about it. I mean, it sounds like you said that you had some rehearsals and everything. How long is that process, and when do you actually start shooting Don's Plum? Prior to doing the read-through of Last Respects and in anticipation of moving forward with Last Respects, we booked Leo for the end of July 1995 to shoot Last Respects. So that was our window to work with Leo. Leo had Marvin's room coming up right after that. I mean, the kid was stupid fucking busy. You know what I mean? Like when it came to, to, to acting, his off time was his off time. But when, you know, when it came to his acting, he was super busy. So it was very hard to find shooting days. Uh, so we nailed down the, the ones we could. We got them. And that was for uh, the weekend, the last weekend of July. This read through took place at the end of June. So we're talking about a little over four weeks. Yeah, and then we just rehearsed, I mean, I don't know how many days a week for those four weeks. We actually incorporated a whole whole audition process for the girls into those rehearsals. R.D. and I would be writing, and sometimes we'd include Bethany Ashton uh, in the writing. And we would write these ideas and scenarios, and then we would assemble the cast along with auditioning the the, the supporting characters that we had written into these different scenarios. You know, as you go through the film, right, whether it's the mechanic or the bums or whatever, and then writing the structure of the conversation. So what's actually happening in the conversation. And prior to all that, really, the, the first kind of steps we did was just build out the characters, which we also included the actors in the process. Of. When did you get the idea for doing that confessional where they go off to the side, maybe in the restroom or whatever, and they do their almost like monologues to the mirror? I'm having a hard time being absolutely sure, but I think that was in the first 10 pages that Stutman and, that Stutman and Beckman brought forward. So I believe that that, that, that idea was, it wasn't in the, as it turned out in the film in that way, but I believe that was in the first 10 pages. And I loved that, by the way. 
we had gotten through the first 72 minutes of the cut, uh, me and RD. And our executive producer, Jerry Meadows, had, had watched the cut. And we all agreed there was just something missing. We were like, don't know what it is. Can't figure it out. You know, because some of the scenes were so good. Like, they just flowed beautifully and the cut worked. Um, but then there were these things that were just kind of blocking and, and we didn't know what it was. And at that time, what we had done is cut the cut the confessionals in linearly. Uh, there was no nonlinear pop-ups at all. When the character got up from the table and went to the bathroom, we went into the bathroom. We went through their entire confessional in a jump cut, cut Godardi type way. And then we brought them back to the table and we did that for each character that had a confessional. And that's how that cut went. So Jerry Metters had a uh, French aficionado. I don't know what she was in the film world living in France. And so he had us run off a three quarter inch cassette for her. And we fucking shipped that thing to France and she watched it. Uh, well, so Jerry Metters, who is one of my favorite people uh, that I've ever encountered and uh, has this incredible sort of charisma and sort of way of things. And he goes, he said, I've heard back from Florence Doman. And she said that, we should cut the confessionals nonlinear and the film will be brilliant. It's just so funny how he did it. It was so like, I felt like I was like transported into Europe at, as he was saying it. So anyway, Florence told, told us that uh, her advice was to cut nonlinearly. And so Ardy and I do- dove into that. And, uh, and that's what you, you see when you see the film now. How was the shoot itself? It was like discovering your true purpose in life for me. You know, it was the greatest thing that ever fucking happened. First thing is I couldn't, re- I couldn't believe my eyes that I had, I had been a part, a key part of creating something that required so many people to come together to make manifest in the world. It was the most, that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever fucking experienced, man. I was like, I was like, there was, there was dozens and dozens of people and trucks and cameras and dolly track. And I'm looking at Ardina, I'm like, we fucking created this. It was as magical as I, I, I was so beyond anything I could have imagined in terms of, of what it felt like to be a part of. And um, so that was amazing. And then uh, the next most beautiful thing for me was I just found that with, if with every particle of me, I had the intent to sort of synchronize with all of these people to achieve a specific outcome that we would make that happen. Like, I don't know if that made sense, but it was just like coming together in a way that I had never experienced before. Uh, something so creatively communal and, and it started happening. And as it was happening, it fucking lifted my soul. I mean, my God, it was, it was magical, man. Magical. And it was life changing. You know, it was like, you know, when you, when you, and then, and then you're just, I, I just remember standing there and realizing like it was 25. I'm sorry. I was 25 years old. And I'm just standing there. I'm 25 years old. And I'm like, here it is. Every question, every curiosity, every, uh, every fucking ounce of inspiration. It's all right here, right now. And I know what I am. It was the most perfect coming of age. And then of course, on a less hyperbolic way, it was, just fun to watch. It was fun to see and hear the clapping and smacking and cracking of trucks and gear and people and terms that you'd never heard before and 
trying to find your way through it all to, you know, the closest thing that you could, you know, reach for as far as, you know, the goal of the day, you know, to get the day, to get the scene, to get the character, whatever. It was fucking, man, a little bit of a ramble, but it was wonderful, bro. It was just as good as it ever felt in life, you know? The first sort of amazing thing that happened was, Donaldson was weird because we only had, we had very little money. We had 40,000 bucks to, to pull off the first three days, which accounted, which accounts for about 72 to 73 minutes of the entire film. So we shot 73 minutes of the entire film just in three days, which is in and of itself kind of a miracle. You see how much of it Leo's in. So all of that was shot in three days and Le- and all of Leo's stuff, everything that Leo was in was shot in two. It was a very special movie. That, that's the part of the, the film that I think uh, the, the, the loss in terms of this film that is, the, you know, I think some of the most tragic stuff, because this is a film that um, that should have helped a lot of filmmakers realize in terms of like this, this, this thing, you know, this thing proved some things that none of us could have imagined in terms of creating a, sa- a creative sandbox for people to work in. You know, just so you know what Don's Plum was for us was taking Mike Lee to the new level, to a new level. I don't know if you know who Mike Lee, or not a new level, that's a fucking ridiculous thing to say because Mike Lee is the highest level. But it was to take Mike Lee, if you don't know who he is, he had, at that time, at that point, had directed a movie called Naked, which starred David Thewlis, which was a movie beloved by all of us. Our entire, you know, as they're now called, Pussy Posse, right? Me, R.D., Leo, Kevin, Scott, Ethan, I mean, everybody loved it. We quoted it. It was our, that movie was everything to us. We fucking loved that movie. And the movie was fully improvised. And that's what inspired us in terms of like going for it, like taking Marissa Ryan's sessions and turning that into a feature. What really emboldened that was that Mike Lee does it all the time. Just so you know, that that was the, the sort of major influence. And it was an influence that we all, every one of us, of uh, the key players of Don's Plum uh, experienced related to and I think stood on, you know, in this project. So the first moment between then and and, and seeing like a cut, well, first of all, I, I, I was present for every frame of it, cut, right? So it was me and RD and the editors through the entire cut. So I, I you know, it was so it was kind of a time lapsey thing if you wanted to like, if I, in memory, you know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, we spent months and months and months and months, um, hundreds and hundreds of hours just cutting every frame. And Don's Plum cuts like an action movie, you know, it's a kind of the, what a part of what makes the movie work is that it's kind of an action movie and that it kind of like created this actiony dialogue thing that I don't think was really present much in features. Uh, I think the closest thing you could have come to at the time was real world. In fact, I would say real world was probably influential in Don's Plum, but more on a subconscious level for all of us because uh, real world was such a thing then. So what was it when you got to see it all cut together? The first memory of like seeing anything as it related to Don's Plum was that, you know, we were broke. We didn't have a lot of money. And consequently, we didn't have the money to tell Sydney the film, right? We're talking about, you know, this is before the digital age, right? So we shot everything on film. We shot over 300,000 feet of film in those three days. And we didn't have the money to tell Sydney it. Tell for those who don't know, is a process whereby you digitize the film from analog or film to digital. And it's a very expensive process. You got to run it through this big sort of capturing machine. You got to run all this film through. It's very expensive. You know, they call it a one light transfer back in the day. And you do this one light transfer. It costs tens of thousands of dollars to do the amount of film that we shot. We did not have the money. So we sat for months 
we could only afford within our budget. We had just enough money to develop one roll of film in Telecine, one roll of film at Photochem. So we took one roll and it was random and we Telecine that shit. And then it came back and I re- I'll never forget the fucking day because I remember when the, the 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 VHS tape it was a VHS tape and I walked in and I was like dude we got a scene we got a we got a reel from Don's Plum months after we shot we stuck it in the VCR threw it up and it's Leo walking into the diner and I just looked at RD and I said it's fucking RD it's beautiful it was a gorgeous looking um, print I was just like RD this is beautiful so wow man that's I think when you know, we knew after we shot that we we had done something um, potentially special. Uh, but when I saw the image, that first image, I was like, "Holy fuck! I think we we got this." So that was the the first moment when I had like that that that, that sort of wow this moment. But uh, you know, from that from that sort of day forward, it was you know uh, seeing Don's Plum. It was fucking nerve wracking. That's what it was. I was losing my mind, man. I was shitting my pants. I was afraid. If I know you're gonna watch that movie like if i sent it to you like, hey man, let me see your movie don's plum or you you made a movie with dicaprio yo let me see that shit you know when that happens and i send that movie i'm like i'm a nervous rack man it's fucking horrible actually i hate it and i love it i mean i, I fucking love it ultimately but i i, I uh man it's it's so nerve-wracking so i was nervous man i was crazy nervous i uh so what happens when you uh, you said you screened it for DiCaprio? What happens then? To a certain extent, Leo did have to approve it before we move forward. Well, at least to the extent that we assured him that we wouldn't move forward with a film that would embarrass him. So it wasn't much uh, as much his approval as it was his um, that we that you know that we had. Um, look, it's a kind of a, a weird sort of topic in that way just because it wasn't about Leo's approval. It was about making sure that what we put out was respectable and true. Okay. So our agreement with Leo was that if this movie isn't a truly, a, a truly worthy independent film that belonged in the marketplace, that we wouldn't put it in the marketplace. In other words, if we missed as fucking artists, we had a goal, we had a purpose. The funny thing about Don's Plum is Don's Plum's a, <laughs> Don's Plum is a very interesting movie because, like, if you get Don's Plum, if you fucking understand that movie, then, like, it's easy for me. Most people do not get Don's Plum, and that's cool. I, I, and and, and I, I'd say by far the majority of people who don't get the film entirely like the film. But there are people who don't get it and dislike it also, obviously. But we have this, like, really deep purpose in our in our hearts for, for what Don's Plum or, or meant to us as, as, as writers, as filmmakers. And so that's what we wanted to achieve with it. And we believe that if we did achieve that, that we wouldn't have to worry about anybody's opinion of it because it would be art and it would speak for itself and everybody would leave it alone. And that's exactly what happened. I would say that Leo did have a certain amount of approval rights. We knew this. If Leo objected to the movie, that was not going to be good for us, right? So we we certainly knew that. And we talked about that with Leo. We made, you know, that was very well known amongst everybody. We were like, look, dude, if you don't fucking like this movie, we know that's going to be bad for us. So we'll cut this movie together. And if you like it, we'll be good to go. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, okay. So to that extent, um, that was his approval rating. Right. Leo loved the movie. He was fucking over the moon for the movie. Loved it. He thought the movie was awesome. Remember where Don's Plum lived, right? Or when Don's Plum 
Plum Plum lived, right? 1990 fucking six, 1997, right? Uh, a, a renaissance of indies, right? Um, a very, very different time for independent film. And this movie fit right in, no doubt about it. And Leo loved it. He was certainly in a take it or leave it situation in life. He didn't need the fucking movie, but he was, he was thrilled with it. At the screening, he jumped out of his seat multiple times. Uh, he was right in the front row and he would jump out of the fucking seat and smack the floor laughing hysterically. Um, he was extremely concerned about whether we could pull it off, me and RD. After the film, he had no worries at all. And then it was in fact him, uh, who sent us to his agent. He said, look, man, I fucking loved it. Sends my agents. Let's start there. We went and screened the movie then after that screening for, for, um, Leo, which took place, I think it was June 25th in 1996. June 25th, 1996. Loved it so much that, uh, you know, he sent it to his agent, said, or sent us to his agent. So Leo requested that we, you know, we, we screened it for CAA. We went to CAA and we screened it for Adam Bennett. That, that was his agent. Uh, if you look him up, he's been the center of much controversy during this Me Too movement. Adam Bennett was Leo's agent at the time. He sent us to screen it for Adam Bennett, Beth Swafford. These, na- these names are significant. That's what I'm telling you about. Uh, Adam Bennett, Beth Swafford, and Rick Yorn. Um, there were other agents there also, including Ken Parks. And uh, they loved the movie Beth Swafford, who is today a prominent, prominent literary agent at CAA was over the fucking moon for the movie like she was screaming about. She couldn't believe how awesome it was. It was so fucking exciting. Rick Yorn was actually hilariously half in and out of watching the film because he was on the phone with James Cameron's people. They were arguing over script notes on Titanic, which was a very notable thing for me. After that screening, they loved it. They were on board. And CAA not only picked up Artie Robb, but also picked up the film. So we're at this party uh, of Henry Day's, and it was at that party where, like, Leo was like, oh, Artie Rob, big CAA boy now, because Artie got signed as a result of Don's Plum. And uh, it was a bit of a weird vibe, actually. Like, he was cool, but there was this, like, almost, like, jealousy thing, or I don't know what it was. Leo denied everything I just told you, under oath. But it was just literally confirmed by another dude. But anyway, okay. So this is 96 you're talking about. The movie, from what I understand, it has a showing at a uh, the Berlin Film Festival in 2001. And what's happening in the meantime? What's this uh, five-year period of time between? A lot, dude. So Leo blocked the movie. Here's the fucking thing, man. Oh, bro, there's so much, dude. Okay, so we screened it for Leo on the 21st of June. So, uh, the immediate screening after that was we flew to New York and we screened it for Miramax in New York. After that, Harvey Weinstein, who was not the monster that every that he is today, or not known as the monster he is today. I think he was quite, quite, quite certainly the monster, but he he was not known as one yet. He was the biggest thing in film. Certainly the biggest thing in independent film. There was nobody else. So uh, obviously having discovered T- Tarantino and Smith and Rodriguez and the list goes on and on and on. If you got on his list, you know, it's a good thing, right? So we fly to New York. We screen it for Miramax. Amy Israel uh, was the executive from Miramax. She's now a big executive at Showtime. 
and also wife to Artie Rob. They met that day. We screened it for Miramax. Miramax makes us an offer at a million bucks. I think they made us an offer at less than a million. And then we countered and then they countered on the million saying they would get all, you know, worldwide, worldwide in perpetuity, uh, no back end for a million bucks or whatever. So we had this, we had a nice little deal going with Harvey Weinstein. And it was really cool because uh, Kevin Smith wa- had a premiere in Santa Monica of Chasing Amy. And it was the first time that I met Harvey after he had seen Don's Plum. And so we got introduced to him and it was like, hey, Harvey, this is Dale and this is RD. They made Don's Plum, producer, writer, director team. And Harvey takes my hand, he shakes it and he says, that was a really smart movie, kid. That was a really smart movie. And I thought, holy fuck, have I arrived. <laughs> you know, biggest dude in the business just told me I made a, far, a, a smart movie. I might be headed in the right direction in this life. It was pretty good stuff. After that, there was so much attention on RD&I. Uh, and there was just a lot of chatter amongst our friends, this so-called pussy pussy. Artie and I weren't paying much attention to it. We were really, you know, busy. I mean, we were, you know, we were constantly fielding offers and looking at how to release this movie. We were still certainly putting the final touches on our, on our sort of submission cut, if you will. And we definitely still had a lot of post-production to go into, uh, moving forward. We were actually negotiating while well, we weren't negotiating. We had been unofficially selected for Sundance at that point. Um, so we we're just really busy getting our the next year of our lives kind of set up because there was going to be a lot of a lot of stuff going on. And we weren't really immersed in our in our clique uh as we as we normally were because of all this work. But there was this growing I don't know what the fuck it was, man. It was something really that Toby had created that was uh an, an animosity toward us. And and there was this sort of growing sentiment that we were somehow taking advantage of people. And so not long after the Miramax screening, Toby McGuire returned to Los Angeles from New York after shooting Ice Storm. And he calls us up and uh, he says, hey, man, I, 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 need, I need to talk to you guys. I want to talk to you about Don's Plum. You know, I have a lot of concerns. And Artie and I were like, fuck, dude, what do you want, man? And he's like, I need to talk to you and I need to talk to you today. And he was really insistent. And so we were like, okay, fine. He said, I'll make you dinner. I'm going to make you some dinner. I'm going to come over. I want to talk to you about Don's Plum. Okay, man, come on over. So he comes over to our house and he brings a box of Kraft dinner and uh, a package of tofu wieners. And uh, that's the dinner he's going to make for us. And I'm like, okay, all right. I mean, I like mac and cheese, brother. Let's do it. In the kitchen, he went and the kitchen and living room were joined and he uh, began uh, preparing this dinner boiling water and uh, opening up the wieners and getting them ready to be uh, seared. And he starts talking about Don's plum. He starts talking, he starts voicing this concern about it. And he starts talking about how he thinks there's something bad going and something wrong, something nefarious on our part. And I remember just already being like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Why are you coming here with this bullshit? I want to, and all of a sudden he just fucking Toby McGuire, he just fucking bursts out in this terrible, horrible scream with his veins just fucking cording out of his neck and his head fucking as red as a tomato. And he screams, I want Don's plum to burn. And we are just like, what the fuck is going on? What is going on with you? 
He's out of his mind, out of his fucking mind. I can't tell you how chilling it was for me because Toby and Leo are very close. And I immediately knew that we were in incredible danger. I was like, this is fucking terrible. And he went on and on uh, screaming uh, about how he believed that we had taken advantage of our friends and our friendships. And, um, and by the way, I want to emphasize something. Toby and I, at this point in our friendships, in our friendship, we were extremely close. Like I was close with all of them. Toby and I were like very, 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 very close. I considered him one of my closest friends, not just of the clique, but on the earth at that time. He like started, his wisdom teeth were bugging him. And so he made an appointment to get his wisdom teeth out. And it was me he called to take him to, to do that. You know what I mean? And hang out with him that day. And because, and I shit you not, he knew I was going to take good fucking care of him, you know, because I loved him. And he fucking knew that. Okay. So this motherfucker shows up screaming to the fucking gods that he wants the fucking film to burn. I cannot understand any of it. I'm what the fuck are you talking about? But I'm fucking scared. RD has just fucking had it. I can't even tell you what was said, but it was just hours and hours of just fucking of hamster wheel shit trying to fucking pacify this motherfucker and shut him up or whatever. Ardee's had it. He's going to bed. He's like, fuck you. I'm going to bed. And I'm left alone with Toby. I'm a Canadian. So I'm the guy who holds open the door. Even if you punch me in the face, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and I, and then I apologize to you after you do it. Right. <laughs> you punch me in the face. I say, I'm sorry. Right. Toby's like, yo, why don't you come over to my place? He's staying with a man by the name of Bob Villard, a man who I later learned was actually serving time for pedophilia or something. It's very strange world he's staying with this guy or staying at this guy's house as he's in transition from one part or i think he was looking at buying or something he takes me to bob ballard's house and i just remember being creeped out by bob ballard's house i was like this is weird bro there's something weird going on in this house it was a very weird weird vibe but i accompany him there hoping that i can continue uh, hoping that i can work on him and pacify him and i felt like we i did you know i felt like we got to this point in the conversation where he was becoming coming back to me in terms of our friendship and what do you mean and don't be ridiculous and we are friends and he kept pressing me for okay dude i understand that you didn't do anything wrong and that rd didn't do anything wrong but I, what was the worst fucking thing that that happened like i just want to know like don't tell me that nothing happened i don't want to hear that nothing happened because i know that's a lie and i don't need to fucking lie to me dale so just tell me like what was the worst thing don't i please don't bullshit me and tell me nothing bad happened Tell me what the worst thing was. And I was like, fine, fuck, I'll tell you. The worst thing I heard, oh, no. And actually, let me back up. He was specific about, this is going to confuse you, so you're going to have to fucking work this out, dude. But the day of the screening, I'm doing a little bit of flashback. The day of the screening on June 21st for Leonardo DiCaprio, Leo actually almost didn't come to that screening. And the reason was because he was going to Las Vegas to celebrate Juliet Lewis's birthday. And that, of course, would have been really bad for us because we're in the middle of finishing a fucking movie and about to take it to the market. And the guy who, if he objects to the film, would be very bad for us is about to fucking skip out on the screen that we fucking set up for him nearly six months prior. We're fucking pissed. Well, it just so happens that Jerry Matters, our executive producer, 
who was then friends with Anita Bush, a journalist at Variety who is now the editor-in-chief over at Deadline. He spoke to her, and she wrote a very small article telling of our achievement in uh, this feature film. Something to, uh, the, the headline read something to the effect, DiCaprio Maguire Ice Indie Pick Because of Ice Storm. And within the body of the article, which lasted maybe two to four sentences, something to the effect of DiCaprio Maguire quietly wrapped uh, and uh, uh, quietly shot an indie feature called Don's Plum, and the producers are now uh, uh, considering people for distribution or whatever, something like that. It's like industry blurb, yeah? When that hit, Leo went fucking crazy. He got so mad because he had not yet seen the film, and the last thing he wanted was announcements regarding a film that he had not even yet seen, and one that he, and one that he had not yet approved of, right? So he went fucking ape fucking shit crazy. And he called me and RD and fucking screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm fucking mad. We were petrified at that point because we were like, holy shit. But it was all that Toby would have need, would need to finish off his nefarious goal of destroying Don's plum. So then, Jesus, the story, bro. And of course, Toby had a fucking problem. He had a really big problem because Leo really liked the movie. Everybody really liked the movie. It was a big problem. The only way for Toby to destroy this movie was to come up with something really fucking bad and nefarious. When he's screaming at me, tell, when he's screaming, actually things are good. And he's not screaming at me at all. He's like, come on, dude, just tell me the fuck. Just tell me something bad. He's like, look, you guys put that article. Tell me about that article. What the fuck with that article? And he kept pressing about the Anita Bush article. And I'm a stupid fucking idiot, bro. I am. But here's the truth. I was being truthful. And Jerry Metters, who was our executive producer, we were all on edge about whether Leonardo DiCaprio, Leo was talking about not coming to the fucking screening, right? Right. Instead of fucking coming to the screening, the, the film that we've been working on for a year and a half, he's going to go and fucking party in Vegas with Juliet Lewis. Do you know what I mean? Like it was bad news for us. And it also meant that all of the work that we had done would be on hold because we got this fucking partier who's going to go party and then he's going to go to fucking Europe for fucking six months, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a bad fucking scene for us in that regard. Well, turns out that the article pissed off pissed, pissed off Leo and got him to the got him to the to the screening. Well, just prior to the screening, we were fucking scared off our fucking tits that Leonardo DiCaprio is going to behead us all upon sight. And Jerry says, stupidly, I'm going to admit, at least he knows we have a voice in the press. That's what he said, and I fucking repeated, yeah, and I repeated it because. Anita Bush was his friend. Look, if you know Jerry, you know that was as idle a threat as anything could be, first of all. And secondly, Gardy and I wouldn't have participated in anything if it weren't. Um, we loved our friends, and there's no fucking, no chance of any of that bullshit happening, right? Speaking of Jerry and Jerry's intentions, Jerry Metter is a beautiful human being, and I love him uh, dearly to this day. And uh, he was also uh, an executive at Paramount and was Paramount in fucking securing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's first fucking Oscar nomination. In fact, it was him who began the campaign internally because he was the head of marketing at Paramount for Leo's Oscar campaign. A very interesting little tidbit there. So, but we were all scared and paranoid and he said the stupid thing. And then I, under all this duress at about five fucking 30 in the goddamn morning said, Metter said uh, this. Well, he went nuts. Holy shit. 
he fucking went crazy, man. He just started screaming, you guys are going to fucking pit the press against Leo. And I said, no, man, that's, that's not what I said. And that's not what's going to happen. And we don't even have to worry about that because everybody likes the film anyway. But nothing like that would happen, et cetera. You know, I mean, now I'm in a shit storm that I created, et cetera. And, and the reality is that fucking Jerry meant nothing by that. Jerry was just being, Jerry, Jerry was just being defensive, frankly. And the reason he was being defensive is because we all knew we had a good film. And here's the thing that we did, didn't agree to with Leo prior to anything. We didn't agree that Leo could just veto kill a movie. We didn't agree that, that Leo could just decide on his own that this movie or anything that we created wasn't good enough. We did agree that his opinion fucking mattered. And we also did agree that other people's opinions would have to be weighed for us to legitimately understand what the movie was or wasn't at the time. We were, we were fortunate enough that Don's plan was good enough that, that, that it was unanimous. It was a fucking unanimous yes on Don's plan. There was literally no objectors to Don's plan but for McGuire. Only one. Only fucking one. So anyway, that's very fucking important. Not Leo, not Leo's agents, not Leo's managers, not Leo's lawyers. I met with all of them. Their words to my ears, Don's plums ago. But Toby then took that moment uh, at Bob Villard's at 4.30, 5.30 in the morning, and he took it to Leo. He called a meeting that took place at Kevin Connolly's house, uh, which I uh, often refer to as the bashing. And R.D. and I were summoned. We appeared. Uh, present were uh, Leo, Toby, Kevin Connolly, Ethan Suplee, Scott Bloom, Nikki Cox, and Kirsten. Uh, what was your fucking name? Christian Zahn. Christian Zahn. Uh, Leo's stunning girlfriend. And uh, Nikki Cox, who was then living with Kevin Connolly and Kristen, they went into another room and the friends meeting began. And it was in that meeting that, as I, I've called it the bashing, we, we sat there and just got just bashed by Toby and then by Ethan and then by Scott and then by Leo. It was absolutely terrifying. Um, they wouldn't listen or allow us to speak uh, or defend ourselves. I tried with everything I could, but it just wasn't going to happen. Um, I was interrupted. I was screamed at literally inches from my face, calling me star fucker and whatever else. Ironically, in my dad. at the end of that multi-hour event, I remember Leo looking at me, telling me something like he couldn't stand a, he said he didn't want to tie, he called me a stupid Canadian tree hugging piece of shit, I believe. It was a very interesting thing because like, I've been friends with these guys for a couple of years at this point and um, when I moved to Los Angeles, it was shortly after uh, being a part of a very large uh, group of activists trying to protect Clockwork Sound, which was a rainforest in Canada. And so it was the largest intact watershed in North America, actually. And it was a very important uh, piece of forest. And the local government, the NDP government, had a contract with the logging firm. They had an 8% hold on the logging firm to log this fucking forest with uh, these ancient, literally multi-hundred-year-old and multi-thousand-year-old trees. A stunning thing to be in. If you've ever stood in a temperate rainforest, it's just magic. And so... I was a part of 
a very large protest that lasted months, including blocking logging roads. And it was just a crazy, awesome time. But we ended up winning a hundred year stay on the logging contract on that forest. It is the greatest achievement of my life, even though I was only a part of many thousands to make it happen. But it's the thing I'm literally most proud of uh, because we literally stopped logging for a hundred years. And then the Canadian government put scientists up in these trees to find out what the fuck's actually going on before we tear them down. Nothing has touched me deeper than than the rainforests of Canada. And I wanted the world to protect them as much as possible because I think that they're an integral part of our fucking eminent survival. Leonardo DiCaprio, the, now the environmentalist, then he shot all over it, couldn't give a fuck. And what people don't know about Leo is that he became an environmentalist, not because he cared about the environment, but because he helped to destroy it. And that there was such a swell against him and all of the rest of the producers of the beach for their destruction of literally prehistoric beaches that had never been touched by humanity. They destroyed them for the purposes of making that film. And there was this huge fucking rise against Leo and the environment. And that's when his publicists turned him into an environmentalist. He became one out of necessity. And people don't fucking know this. And it's all over. Like, you can go find it. It's there. So you can go fucking do your own research. You'll read about it. It was well covered in the 90s. Did, did Leo not love the environment in 1996? I don't think he cared about much. I think he cared about getting fucking laid and building his career. I, I don't think he cared about much. Let's not say that maybe that, that he hasn't developed a genuine loving for the environment and protection of the environment. And I don't think uh, it would serve anybody to think that anything he's doing is bad if it's raising awareness, uh, you know, against climate change. I mean, uh, so I, I don't in any way want to, you know, infringe on any of that. But motives are motives. And I think they're they're uh, they're they're important to understand. I also will say this about Leo that I knew and understood about him as his friend in the 90s. And that's that he would find a way to hurt you. And then he would do that. He knew that would hurt me bad. Picking me apart for wanting and, 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 and loving me, wanting to save and for loving the environment would be something that would hurt me personally. And that's why he did it. He also knew that calling me a, a dumb fucking Canadian would kick my ass. And he did that too. So that was the bashing born from Toby's desire to destroy the film. And I have spent fucking two decades, my man, two decades trying to figure out why, 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 why the fuck would you do this, Toby? I could not understand it. And then I suddenly fucking remembered something, man. I remembered that in 1995, it was James Cameron that announced that he was going to do Spider-Man. And that's when it fucking clicked. I was like, wait a second. That happened. The announcement comes. If you look right now, if you do your own research, you'll find that James Cameron announced that he was doing Spider-Man after we shot Don's Plum. Tobey Maguire, we screened the film for him and nobody else. And it was the 72-minute version of the film, which we screened for him in, I think it was, was it March of 96, Angela? So it was April of 96 that we, he was the only human being other than me and our dean, our editors, to, and, and Jerry Metters, our producers, to see the 72-minute cut of Don's Plum. So he's the, only one, he's the only one who knew how visceral and how inciting the, the piece could be. And it was from that day forward that I later learned, by the way, which is here's a fucking interesting point. So Scott Bloom and R.D. Rob were hanging out just a few years ago, and Scott Bloom told R.D., according to R.D., Scott Bloom told R.D., 
that Toby began his sort of poisoning campaign against Don's Plum right after he had seen that screening. And I was like, well, why would he do that? Because the fucking film was good and we all knew that. We all knew that it fit well into the whole indie scene that was going on in the 90s. So there was no reason. There was nothing to object to here. This movie fit in. His, uh, Leo DiCaprio's agents, and this, by the way, was told to me by Leo at the night of the bashing, referred to Don's Plum as a welcome to the dollhouse type movie. They were like, yeah, man, it's it's called uh, – it, 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 when, when they talked about it with Leo with regards to approving the film. They said, Leo, it's totally fine. This is Leo telling us the night of the bashing. They said, my agent said it's fine. They said it would be fine if we released it. It's like a welcome to the dollhouse type movie. When when Toby saw the movie, the 72-minute cut, he said he liked it. But, you know, you're going to say that to filmmakers, right? He was uneasy, though. He was definitely uneasy about it. And so what's interesting, by the way, and, and very notable is that when he showed up with the craft dinner and the wieners, uh, he had not yet seen the film in its entirety. He had not seen any of the reshoots or the new scenes that we had had shot. He had not seen about 17 minutes of the film at that point. Uh, And and, and much of it was him, right? It's that opening scene with him and the three girls at the bar where the dancers are, the Toledo diamond uh, bit. Uh, So he hadn't seen any of that. Um, He just hadn't seen the whole film. He hadn't seen the soundtrack. We hadn't finished that. We were all in temp at that point. So he hadn't, uh, he hadn't, you know, experienced the film at all uh, at that point. So I, I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized, wow, wait a second. This is not coincidental. Leo just fucking landed Titanic. I'll never forget that because Leo was like, Leo was like, uh, we, we were all hanging out at his house. I think it was his house. Maybe we were at a bar. I don't know where the fuck we were. It could have been Formosa. But I remember he was just like, all right, here's what I got. I can do Boogie Nights with Paul Thomas, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Or I can do Titanic with James Cameron. We were at his house now because I remember I can now remember where I was. We were in his bedroom, and I looked up at him and I said, "Well, it's a kind of it's it's fairly easy like to break it down. Do you want to listen to this? I fucking said this to Leo DiCaprio. I said, if you want to have a movie that makes a hundred million dollars in the box office, you should do Titanic." <laughs> I said, but if you want to win an Oscar, you should do PTA. And uh, it went on and did a billion dollars. A billion. A billion dollars. But that was all I said to him when when I weighed in. So he landed Titanic. He's in a relationship with James Cameron. And with that relationship, there's no fucking doubt in my mind that Toby knew that he now had access to James Cameron, who was announced as uh, the director of fucking Spider-Man. And there's no fucking doubt in my mind because I know Toby's a long play guy. He's, uh, I knew Toby very fucking well. I can tell you about every part of his anatomy. I know the guy. He is a long play guy. He's not a short play guy. And he fucking saw that. And so did Eric Kranzler, his manager. And I, that, so that's my belief. And that's all conjecture. Uh, I have a cut. That is the, so you could almost call it the Toby McGuire cut, but it's the cut that we actually screened for Leo. But it's like a really like I guess it's now a very rare bootleg. So I got contacted on I got contacted on Freedom's Plum about a month ago from a guy who wanted to ask me about some of the cuts that were made between the two, and I was like, "Where'd you get that shit?" Because I hadn't seen it since the '90s, and he's like, "Oh, it's a it's a bootleg." And I was like, "Well, I'll answer your questions if you give me a link to that bootleg, bro." And he was like, "I'll give you the link to the bootleg, bootleg, but don't let it out to the masses." He goes because it's apparently a rare bootleg, and his 
group circle. I don't know what to call it, whatever. They'll know it came from him. Well, now they won't. But anyway, it's got all the original stuff, including. So, you know, uh, one of the things that Toby had removed from the film in the settlement was uh, there's a, uh, you know, they're, they're sitting around and they're bantering about masturbation. And he confesses to putting his finger up his ass when he beats off. And it's, a, it's actually a really great moment in the movie. It's really honest and cool. And it was the thing I was, I was really proud about it uh, with him. In fact, I talked to him about it and I think it was one of the things that helped set him off later. But I, I mentioned to him that I thought it was really a beautifully honest moment. And the reason why I thought it was beautifully honest is because our generation, we didn't really, we didn't talk about our sexuality really. You know what I mean? Like that, that was not something we talked about. Like masturbation was not, it was something you would get, you know, seriously teased about if you got caught, you know? Um, that it was, it was, a, it was definitely, it was definitely taboo in every way. And so when, to, and, and we definitely wanted to, for our generation, attack some of the taboos. Uh, and Toby went after that one and I was really proud of him, man. I was like, in a we were in a car and he was asking, uh, we were in his car and he was, we were, he was asking about how the cut was coming. And I said to him, man, you have this really great moment. It's one of the most honest moments in the film. And it's really, to me, a lot about what this film's about for me, which is that we're breaking down barriers for our own generation so that when we, you know, when people see this movie, they can, they can maybe relate to their own generation and how each generation maybe that comes after it can relate to it. And, you know, this kind of stuff, and you know, just being artist or artsy or whatever. And then he's like, yeah, what, what, what's that moment? And then I described for him the moment, which is, and, uh, and he was like, dude, I don't do that. <laughs> and I was like, just like our generation would, you know? Right back to the 80s, dude. He's like, I would never do that. I was just acting. I was like, Toby, I, it's fine. It's just a really good moment. Chill out. Well, when when the settlement happened, he was like, yeah, take that out. So we did. And I got it on the bootleg. So how does Dance Plum then get into the Berlin Film Festival all those years later? Yeah, so we spend uh, several years in a sort of terrible, you know, sort of hold because, the, you know, this was the difficult thing with Leo was that he wasn't a big star when we were going through this, uh, Romeo and Juliet hadn't even come out yet. His biggest box office hit as, as, as the lead was $3 million in basketball divers. You know, he was obviously Oscar nominated. He was beloved in Hollywood. But when I called my mom and said, mom, I'm making a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. She not only couldn't pronounce it, but couldn't, didn't know who the fuck I was talking about in the first place. Um, so, uh, it wasn't easy for us to, uh, you know, first of all, it wasn't as easy as people might think it would be because they know of Leo today to raise the money to even fucking finish the film. Um, but uh, it was even more difficult after the dispute broke out to even entertain getting a lawyer because we were broke and Leo wasn't worth anything. He had nothing. Uh, he was he lived on Am- he lived in a little house on Ambrose where we used to hang out with him and his mom, Irma Lynn, and play with his dog, uh, Rocky. And fucking swim in a swimming pool. And it was a tiny little place, maybe two bedrooms, maybe three bedrooms, which is tiny. And, you know, he was still rich. Like, Leo was technically rich at the time. Um, but he wasn't, no lawyer was going to go after him. You know, there was no, like, unless we're paying 400 bucks an hour, right? So we, we literally didn't, so no lawyer would touch us. We, yeah, our, our producer, David Stutman, went out and tried to get, uh, representation to sue him for fucking distribution because okay so to answer your question in between after Leo had seen the film after Leo had blocked the film so called the bashing 
in, you know, the lawsuit or Berlin, we, uh, well, we'll, we'll say between um, the bashing and the lawsuit was a dead period where we couldn't get any representation because Leo wasn't worth enough to get somebody on contingency and we didn't have 400 bucks an hour to pay a lawyer. Titanic happens, he blows up, becomes the biggest thing in the world, and next thing you know, Burt Fields wants us. Burt Fields is the biggest fucking litigator in Hollywood. So then we land Burt Fields. He takes the case believing it'll settle quickly because it's nonsense, and usually when nonsense gets litigated, it settles quickly. And uh, Leo digs in deep and hard, and eventually uh, Burt Fields drops the case and drops us basically on the curb. We get picked up by another guy called Henry Gradstein. He runs the case for a little while longer. We're able to get to the settlement, uh, to, to a settlement uh, meeting once again. However, and, and then, and then I'm forced into a, into agreeing to a settlement under duress because my lawyer at the time, Henry Gradstein, tells me, you either take this deal or I'm going to drop you too. And being dropped by the third attorney, or sorry, the second attorney means very unlikely that I get a third. And that means that we- Leo, Leo will just like win. I'll just I'll lose everything. So with that, we are sort of forced to settle. We settle that uh, lawsuit, and that settlement allows us to distribute internationally, but not in the U.S. or Canada. So we subsequently decide on working with Lars von Trier's Zentropa Films, in part because we're we're love we love Lars at the time. Uh, we just loved his work. Uh, I didn't know him, but I loved his work. Also, because Trust Fund Sales had a growing rep- reputation internationally as being a badass sales agent, so we were like, well, fuck, we'll take that. We got a $9 million quote from them in terms of what they projected for sales. So we were like, okay, well, we're going to make $9 million. It's great. We'll do this deal. So we did this deal. We're going to get away with it. We're going to get $9 million, and that'll allow us to repair our careers because we'll have the money to finance our, our next movie. And that was a really big thing. It was like, well, if we have enough money to finance our next movie, then we don't have to worry about the Leo damage because we'll win with a movie. All we needed was a million bucks. You know, that's what we thought. Because <clears throat> we're fucking talented. Like, we're really talented filmmakers. And we're like, okay, fucking, we'll make another fucking... We had written three or four different films that we thought would rock, and we would just find the right cast, et cetera, et cetera. And that's it. So that that, that was it. So once we got to Zentropa, we finished the film, and it was Zentropa that landed us in Berlin. Since you've got that agreement, you can also have DVD releases in the UK and Hungary and all those things, too. Everywhere but the U.S. and Canada. But what's very fucking interesting about all that, we were not released in France. We were not released in Italy. We were not. Like, how does a Leonardo DiCaprio film shot in black and white, rather avant-garde, if you will, not get released in France? The home of fucking Godard. Like, how does Don's Plum not get released in the home of Godard with the world's biggest movie star in it? Fucking bizarre, right? There was a lawsuit because, and it was filed by by David Stutman, and the lawsuit accused Leonardo DiCaprio of interfering with the distribution of Don's Plum. And after the lawsuit was settled, just so you know, there's only one possible reason why Don's Plum wasn't distributed in France or in Italy or in any other country in the world like the UK, and that's because Leonardo DiCaprio interfered. There's no other explanation. The the, the lawsuit happened. It was filed by David Stepman, producer of Don's Plum, against Leonardo DiCaprio Tobey Maguire for interfering. When it was settled, they, they agreed not to interfere again with any of the distribution of Don's Plum, but yet somehow with the biggest fucking film star in the world, I could not get distribution for a film 
that starred not just Leonardo DiCaprio, but Spider-Man and fucking Kevin Connolly and Jeremy Sisto, et cetera, et cetera. In Premier Magazine in 1997 or 1998, right, they did an article about Don's Plum and the, and the, and the, and the, the fucking shenanigans, yeah? In, in that article, they interviewed Jason Blum. Do you know who Jason Blum is? Oh, yeah, from Blumhouse Pictures. Okay, so Jason Blum was partnered with Amy Israel at Miramax, and he was a part of the acquisition team trying to, trying to bring Don's Plum to Miramax. So Jason Blum was interviewed by Premier Magazine, and Maximilian Potter, I think, was the guy's name or something like that. And the writer quoted Blum saying that he got a call from Rick Yorn, and that Rick Yorn said very specifically that if Harvey moves forward with the acquisition of Don's Plum, that there will be consequences. And that is when Miramax dropped us from their pursuits. And when we were in Europe after the settlement, our sales agent came to us and told us the great news. He said, I just sold Italy for $750,000 which was huge for Italy. Like that's not, that is a giant number. And so we were like, so when you run the numbers, we had some, we had some other complications I won't get into with you right now, but we had some other complications was dropped us by 6 million from nine to three. And we were devastated by it. And we were about to get kicked out of fucking Denmark. Italy came in at 750,000 and jumped our numbers back up to 6 million, our overall projections. And we took a $2 million blow that rippled. Uh, down the rest of the numbers. Okay, so <clears throat> then that fucking distributor who gave us a $750,000 guarantee for Italy went to the set of Gangs of New York, which was happening at the same time as we were cutting at Large Montreal Studio. He went up to Leo and he said, hey man, I just bought a movie, probably in Italian. I just bought one of your movies at Don's Plum. I'm so excited because he was not abreast of the situation. And then Leo told him that if he bought Don's Plum, that he would not be getting Gangs of New York. And so the next day, he called up our sales agent and said, I will never, ever admit to this. But here's what happened. And he told him the story. But yes, it was available in DVD. So I ended up buying a copy of Don's Plum on eBay. That's how I got it. And I've got a copy of it here. It says, the cover is, Juego Prohibido. (laughs) How does Don's Plum then end up being streamed online? So I was bound by a settlement agreement that had me only allowed to speak like like three or four sentences about the film and about my experience with the film. Like it's it literally it was like provisioned in a um in the document. Then like these are the things you can say, and there was like three points that I could say. It was like um it was we we're happy that we were able to come to an amicable agreement. And we are excited that we can now release the film to all the territories around the world. And we hope that people enjoy the film. Basically, something like that. Those are the only things that we could say. Okay, so that was it. I saw it come up a few times over the years. It would come up on YouTube, and then it would be taken down with copyright claims by Leonardo DiCaprio and so on and so forth. And that happened for years and years and years. And it was right around usually when it got to about 100,000 views. So Don's Plum would come up, it'd get to 100,000 views, and it would get kicked out. And I never said anything because I didn't want to violate my settlement agreement and get sued by Leonardo DiCaprio because, fuck, I've been through that, you know? And I'm not going to win again. <laughs> guys, I just got way too much money. 
that's sort of been its cycle uh, until 2014. And then on 2014, well, so here's a crazy story for you. I've been silent about Don's poem, really not talking about it to anybody really at all. It did come up occasionally in conversations, but it would almost never come up over those years. Uh, I meet this girl at uh, the Bourgeois Pig in Los Angeles, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. And I was just staggered by her. And um, after some time, we began dating and it got serious and she's about to move in with me. And she's working at this coffee shop. And I'm talking about the film. And uh, because some guy asked me, he says, what are you? I'm a filmmaker. Uh, oh, you done anything I know? Not really. Have you ever worked with anybody famous? This is all the shit I always have to go through. And well, well I did work with you know, one guy. Who's that? DiCaprio, mind blown. And off we go. Right. But in all of the time I was with her, Angela, I never spoke about Don's Punk. I don't. It was kind of a point of shame for me at this point. And so anyway, she overhears that I'm talking about this fucking movie. And she's like, whoa, dude, what? You made a movie with who? I'm moving in with you. You made a what? She was just fucking blown away. So I told her, I was like, well, it's just it's contentious and problems. And I'm not really, you know, I don't really talk about it much. And she was like, well, I, can I see it? And I'm like, of course. So I give her a copy of the film. She watches it. Fucking loves the movie. She's and, and, and then later tells me that she was a massive fan of 90s indies. And she was like, this would have been like 100% on my shelf, like 100%. This would have been next to every one of them, whether it's pie or clerks or whatever, it would have been with them. And uh, it was really kind of a neat moment, actually. And um, so then she asked to read more stuff and I, I give her some some of my writing and she fucking loves this piece that I've been working on for literally at that point, uh, 10 years, meaning like not obviously every day for 10 years. But over the last 10 years, I've been working on this this, this, this story that to this day, I, I, I hope is the next film I make. She then decides, hey, man, she's going to go out with it. She's like, I'm going to get I know this guy. He's a multi-billion dollar producer. Uh, I'm friends with him. I'm going to bring it to him. Can I do that? I'm just like, yeah, fuck yeah. Do it. Do it. Why wouldn't you? So off she goes. She comes back. He loves the fucking thing. He loves it. I'm like, are you fucking serious? He's like, no, no, no. He loves it. This is just the kind of thing he wants to make. I'm like, oh my God. She's like, things are going to happen. This guy's a fucking real deal. And you know, I looked him, I, I didn't have to look him up. I knew who he was. Guy's massive. I'll never, I won't say his name. Not long after he finally starts finding, asking about me. Well, tell me more about this guy. So she tells him, oh, I, I know this guy. I know who he is, he says. I know this story about Don's Plum, he says. Uh, and he came up with a story about how the agents are the ones who destroyed the movie and for what reasons. Um, after that, he dropped the film, dropped the relationship. I mean, they basically haven't talked since. And so I slipped into a pretty serious depression at that point because we're talking about 2014. So we're talking about 19 years. And all of that time, I had just abided by my agreement. I kept quiet. I didn't say a fucking word to anybody. And I just waited, believing in my heart that there would be a time and that, I, that, that where I would have a chance to emerge again as a filmmaker and that when that time come would come, I would be ready. And this was that time, I thought, when he had finally just basically passed on us uh, based on this past, I didn't know what to do, man. You know, I just didn't know what to do. And, and I slipped into another bit of depression. And I think that's when like, this is, you know, like the really sad part of the story for me, because like, you know, I'm of that age where I'm sort of, you know, there's like, you know, where there's like a lot of us 
Gen Xers who are killing ourselves, who are living in deep depression. And, and I got hit really hard like that, you know, where I, where I suddenly became immersed in suicide ideation and just, just bad, bad stuff, you know? Uh, and I started plum- uh, plummeting very quickly. And, and this is all while I'm, well, I've just fallen in love with this girl. And I'm like, this is, this is bad. This is really, really bad. But I, I truly had this belief, this, this, this ember of hope that lived inside of me that one day I would have this chance. And when Angela came back and told me that this guy told her a story about it, and then subsequent to that, he basically fell off and we were no longer really in consideration. It made me realize, wow, they really succeeded and I'm done. And so I became suicidal. And so I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to die. And I feel like I want to die. And this is like, this is a huge conflict. And so I just sat down with Angela and I said, I think the only, I need to do something. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to write an open letter to Leo. I'm going to tell my side of the fucking story. I'm going to break my non-disclosure agreement. And I'm just going to say, Hey bro, I, I didn't fucking do anything to you. Something I want to throw in is, one of the quotes that stuck with me when this producer passed on us was that he said, hey, listen, man. Oh, well, he, he kept asking questions like, why was there a lawsuit? And why would Leo interfere? And then he said, look, man, I can't get on the wrong side of Leo, man. Leo is too big. I can't get on the wrong side of Leo. Uh, the reason I came to you is because I, we needed somebody who's bigger than Leo. And he's like, no, no one's bigger than Leo, man. No one's bigger than Leo. Not something I expected because this guy literally has multi-billion dollars in just one franchise alone in revenue. I mean, his last, I think his last movie, which was like in the last couple of years, did like multi-billion dollars. And it's like the fourth or fifth or sixth installment. It's like crazy. So, uh, that was, that was pretty shocking. So literally to save my life, I was like, I just, and I didn't tell Angela this because I was going to confess that I had uh, thoughts of suicide, but I was like, I need to do something to stand up for myself. I need to do something to, I need to, I felt like I needed to save my life. I felt like if I didn't do something that I I didn't know how to continue, that the only way to continue was to finally confront this because I'm still living with it at at, at 19 years past. Uh, At first, Angela was reluctant, of course, and for good reason. And she was, and to to this day, I kind of feel bad because she was like, I don't know if I want to spend a good portion of my life in this fight with you, man. Like, this is crazy. You've been fighting for 20 years. I mean, she's like, and then on top of that, I I want this guy to come and take everything we might earn or just like earn or like become just because he's so powerful. He's got the money to do that. I just pointed out to her. I was like, well, I got nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm broke. You know, I'm, I'm not. I don't have, I mean, I'm, I'm a paycheck to paycheck guy. I just came out of a divorce where I lost my house and everything. So I've got nothing, man. The only thing that Leo can get is money and I don't have any. And he's done a good job of preventing me from making it in, in, in my chosen profession, my, my chosen career. Like I was kind of hitting a rock bottom and my cable got disconnected, but I had a DVR and I had, I had this bank of SNLs and I was really down. And I was hanging out with Angela and the cable got this kid. And I was like, Hey man, like I'm watching some, like we got these SNLs and she was like, Oh shit, this is great. We'll watch some SNLs. You know, this is before streaming. Right. So, uh, we start watching SNL and <laughs> says right on and Joanna Hill comes on. He's the guest. And I'm like, are you the host of SNL? And I'm like, ah, it's Jonah Hill. Oh, he's there for Wolf of Wall Street. I was like, okay, well, this is good news because Leo never does this shit. So I'm going to be fine. You know, worst is going to happen is because it's Leo season. This is Leo season. It's Wolf of, Wall, Wolf of Wall Street season. So it's actually Leo season at the time. And I'm like, well, so like, this isn't so bad. We'll just watch this. It's only him. And then fucking 
Leo, first time in his stupid fuck career, comes out of the back, right? On the SNL, he makes the appearance on SNL. So, like, I lost my cable, man, because I'm broke. And, like, I'm just trying to forget about my problems, you know? And I turned on fucking SNL. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. So I turned to Angela and I was like, I figured it out. I'm, I'm Leonardo DiCaprio's sadness. I'm here so that Leonardo DiCaprio never, ever has to experience any sadness because I experience all of it for him. Is that what prompts you to put it up online for people to see finally? Right. So I read the open letter to save my, my, uh, to, to literally save my life, to stand up for myself, to get a voice, to try and clear my own reputation or at least build one or something and just make some fucking attempt. And so I write that and I also released Don's Plum in 2014 on the website, Free Don's Plum. So I released the movie and I write the open letter to the public, free to watch, right? And I met with crickets, man. Like, like we, we do this and we think, you know, it's DiCaprio. Everyone's going to be interested in this, you know? <laughs> I put that shit out there and it was crickets. Like there was nothing in my immediate world, like Leo and everybody, I knew everybody like that had read it. But other than that, nobody gave a shit. There was no press. There was no nothing. Nobody cared. So nobody, oh man, it was so embarrassing. And so it again flooded me into another sort of even deeper level of depression. And then so from there, it was like, well, fuck, what are we going to do? And I had this movie that Angela tried to get with this producer. That producer passed because of Don's Plum. So Angela's like, well, you're a great writer. Write a book. And I'm like, well, that, that's a possibility. So we decide I'm going to write a book about this movie that I've been writing for, for over the last 15 years. And I'm just going to write a novel. So then Angela's like, okay, great. Let's fucking set up. Let's find a place to live. We go through this process. We decide on Athens, Georgia, because it has a Trader Joe's and because the rent is cheap. Those are the two things. It was between New Orleans and, and, and Athens and Athens won because of the Trader Joe's. And so, um, so we moved to Athens, Georgia, where I was going to write the book and a bunch of shit took place here and I ended up making a film and all sorts of shit. But what's more important is that Leo got nominated for an Oscar and I had still been in this fairly resolved state of suicide. Uh, I was, I was pretty resolved to, to, to killing myself and I was working through how I was going to do it and when and how I was going to deal with Angela because that was my biggest concern. And then, this kid in Brazil does a today I learned and he goes today I learned that Leonardo DiCaprio blocked a film and the producer wrote an open letter and released it online and that hit the front page of Reddit it blew up and the highest upvoted comment was my rebuking language to Leo in the letter it blew the fuck up, and I spent the entire weekend laying in my bed, my laptop, defending Don's Plum. And just kept, kept saying to all the haters who were telling me how much I should hate myself, or how much of a loser I was, or how I need to get over it and move on, and blah, blah, blah. And I just kept saying, okay, look, I get it. You don't like me, or you don't like the movie, or whatever. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you one question. Do you believe that because of the way you feel about me, or because of the way you feel about the movie, that that entitles Leonardo DiCaprio to stop a film that was made by 50 or 60 or 100 different people, artists, craftsmen, et cetera? Do you believe all those people who would have all been paid and received more money and, uh, and recognition for their work, do you believe all those people should suffer because Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't like me or doesn't like the movie or because you don't like me or because you don't like the movie. And of course, no one with any reasonable fucking modicum of rationality said, 
no, no, the movie shouldn't be blocked. But fuck you, you're a loser. <laughs> you know? That kid saved my life, though. Like, I was, I was not only renewed uh, in terms of the fight, but uh, all of a sudden uh, we had 50,000 requests for screenings, uh, over 50,000. I think it was more like 75,000. Uh, just things blew up and it kept snowballing. You know, the guardian did a piece and then, you know, fucking entertainment weekly did something. And then all, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of articles popping up all over the world, requests for interviews, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, shit, we got some attention and we're going to change the dialogue. And we did. If you look at Don's plum on Google, if you go to Google past, and you go and you look at Google, search Don's Plum Google before Leonardo DiCaprio's nomination and then search for it in January of 2016, you're going to see a completely different dialogue about Don's Plum on the front page of Google search. It started, the early dialogue is how filmmakers fucked over Leo. And then later dialogue is, you know, is a producer's fight for his, uh, for against, against abuse of power, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's really quite remarkable. But this kid, like, really did save my life because, like, suddenly I felt like that I, that, that, that people were going to listen and that we're, I was going to get somewhere. And, um, yeah, man, it was a big day. Yeah. So that's kind of the story. And then, and then, you know, obviously Leo decided after it blew up, here's the funny fucking thing, man. I said, when, when I wrote the open letter to Angela, I said to Angela, you know, look, Leo's best pleasure, his best move is nothing, do nothing. If he, if he decides to do anything, he's going to make it relevant again. If he does nothing, then no, no one's going to talk about this. So let's just hope he does something. I wanted him to sue me, and I still do. I'd love to get this thing back in front of a, a, a judge. I think I fucking, like the evidence will just be ridiculous against him. But anyway, uh, that's a layman speaking. He did nothing. And that was surprising to me because Leo's not the sharpest tool in the shed. Neither is his fucking, neither is his representation. You know, they're really not. You know, they've obviously done a lot of things right, but trust me, they're not the smartest group. And they did nothing though. And I was, I was kind of shocked. I was like, wow, that is not what I expected. Leo is, is usually not, not so, so, so swift. Come Oscar time, Leo became Leo all over again. I was, I was really, really thrilled. I was like, yeah, you are who I thought, you know, who, who you were. You haven't changed all that much. So what did he do? He took the movie down. And I get a notification from Vimeo, which I published. And then when that came down, that became news. And that blew up all over. And everybody had to write about that. And then his publicist had some work to do. So uh, anyway, and, and that's been the fight ever since. And now, you know, like it's kind of a new fight in, in, in a lot of ways because now the, the fight is – the biggest fight right now is the influence that publicists have on the press that I do get. Like, for example, I got approached by Vanity Fair, and it was like this is – literally, Vanity Fair was my goal. I was like, if I could get on Vanity Fair, then maybe I could get the attention, and if I can get the attention, then maybe I can not only reverse Don's plum but find somebody out there who wants to, you know, get behind uh, – uh, something that once was and see what it could still be. And Vanity Fair came along and I got this amazing fucking email after the Vanity Fair article ran because I wrote the writer with expressing my extreme disappointment with the article and how the article was clearly swayed at the end to make me look like an idiot. And I was like, you're a real fucking asshole. I opened up my door to him. I opened up my life to him. I let him in. Much the same with what we're doing, but I did it for many, many more hours, believe it or not. Well, I guess it's probably believable since I'm just cramming with you right now. He wrote back, and I didn't actually read this until a few weeks ago. This is years later because I was so pissed at him that I didn't even want to read his I didn't even want to read his response. I just fucking wrote him, told him he was a dick, and I shut the email down. 
Well, I decided to read it. And the reason was because I, I, I believed that Leo interfered with the article. Well, he wrote me, this writer, and he told me as much. I could, I could fucking believe it. It's right there in writing. But yeah, uh, publicist, uh, Leo's publicist interfered with the article and completely changed the vernacular of the article. And its focus was on, you know, the truth as I presented it and instead uh, got, you know, sort of swayed into this uh, sort of middle ground piece that at the end gave Leo a lot of power. And that was all done by his publicist. So now my new fight is to get the real and true story out. And, and I think we're going to do that with uh, with a documentary and also with, with our own podcast, which is kind of our own podcast, which is really like um, the, the, the which is really going to be focused on the on the on the on the lawsuit kind of a trial that never was. Um, we have, we have all of the depositions and we have all the exhibitions, uh, ex uh, all the, um, discovery. And so we're going to kind of mock try the case. And that is happening when July, you said, uh, well, July is the New York post article. Uh, the, the podcast is Angela's, you know, fucking up to your eyes and writing that. And the documentary, which is kind of like, I, I kind of refer to it as like a vlogumentary, I'm still shooting it. So when I got to Athens, Georgia, and I was in this whole suicidal state, and I was really in really, really bad depression, and and then you know, and then suddenly the open letter broke, and all this press started happening, and then things started kind of shifting a little bit, at least in my favor, to the extent that we we're changing the vernacular, as I said, and my spirits picked up. I still very much battle with depression on a daily basis, but. But it was a lot, you know, but, but, you know, I wasn't planning my goddamn suicide. So I was, I was making great progress. Anyway, July will be the New York Post documentary, which is like a, this mini doc, which will be under 40 minutes. Uh, it might come in a series of small vignettes of 10 minute pieces or something. But anyway, that comes out in, 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 in July. I don't know when the first episode will drop on this podcast. We haven't yet begun recording it's just all been writing and then yeah this vlogumentary which is me just kind of telling telling the story really to the camera and then rolling it out with b-roll is is uh we're, we're shooting it right now oh this is what i was telling you was like so i came to this fucking town here and, and 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 i came here to write this book i ended up hooking up with these dudes and ended up like you know so this guy fell in love with this movie that i was going to write the book about instead and he wanted to make the movie instead of me writing the movie sorry he wanted to make the movie instead of me writing the book and i was Certainly down with that because I'm a filmmaker more than I'm anything else. And if I'm anything else, so we're going to make this film and he's investing in me. So I say, Hey bro, you got any other writers? Cause I'm really good at working with writers. I'm a producer. I can produce the fuck out of writers. Give me a writer. If you got one and I'll make, I'll make him great. He's like, I got this writer. I'd like you to do that. I did. His name is Matt Chastain. He was a faith. He's a faith-based guy. He's a Christian dude. He wrote a faith-based film, though I'm not faith-based. I said, Hey, listen, if you don't mind an atheist working on your shit, I can help you uh, be great at this. And he was like, please help me. He was a first timer. I got with him. We worked our asses off. I spent uh, fuck, man, 15 months developing him and developing his screenplay, preparing him to direct, uh, became attached as a producer. I produced him creatively, uh, the director. Uh, he also, you know, started, sort of started the movie. We were able to raise uh, just over a million dollars for the production. And on Saturday, we just got Best Picture at the largest Christian film festival in the country. Congratulations! Not fucking bad. So, I mean, it's look. I mean, it's a good. It's a good little film. It's not. It's not you know groundbreaking or earth shattering or anything. But it, it's a movie I'm still proud of. Um, 
uh, despite its flaws and and uh, and and despite the fact that it's you know it's a genre that I'm not particularly married to in any way. You know what I mean? But I'm very proud of the film and I'm proud of the filmmakers that I worked with. And uh, but yeah, isn't that cool, man? We won. Uh, we won Best Picture. And, and, and the funny thing about winning Best Picture, and we were up against some formidable talent. You know, Corbin Burnson, you know, he's not a bad actor, bro. And, and, and he was up there and, you know, some Kevin Sorbo crap and stuff like that. But so when it comes to the New York Post thing and then the vlogumentary, I guess is what you're calling it. It's an autobiographical documentary. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a double portmanteau with that. Yeah. Is that all going to be available on uh, freedownsplum.com? The, the the piece that uh, that the New York Post is doing is journalistic. The piece I'm doing is 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 a memoir, more of a memoir or autobiographical. So they're very different. I mean, they're very different perspectives. I mean, I, I have no interest in in interviewing Henry Days about the party that we had at his house or or anybody for that matter. I'm I'm really this this movie is about about surviving. You know, this my uh, sort of autobiographical side of it all is about about surviving this, this immense depression and, and um, the adversity that I've been faced with. I'm, I'm hoping that it's, 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 it's a film that, that gives it, that gives people some hope that, you know, it, it's sadly my story is not an uncommon story. My hope is that maybe I can make something that people can not only relate to, but maybe recognize so that they can rally behind it. it you know, this is a sad, really sad story. 20 years of my life were lost. And, you know, this is going to sound boastful, but I'm a, I'm really talented. Like I'm good at this. And I remember uh, in my interview with the New York Post, which was over a year ago now. That's how long they've been working on their piece. I was like, it's not just the loss of Don's plum. It's the all the work that was that was to come that hurts the most. You know, I was at a creative like God. It was massive. I mean, like I was just overwhelmed with creativity. It was just coming at, you know, it was like, it was, it was at that age where, and I, and I hit it, you know, I nailed a, an indie film. It was my first one. And, uh, and I knew that there was just a lot of great, a, a lot of great stuff to come. I mean, I believed it as much as I believed in, in that movie when we began it. I don't know. That's the sad part for me is, is what didn't happen, not just what happened. Well, Dale, thank you so much for all this time tonight. This was fantastic. Thank you. I hope it's uh, useful. If there's anything more I can do to help you create a great podcast uh, and tell the story you want to tell with this with this stuff, please don't hesitate to to get a hold of me. I'll I'll, I'll make the time for you. And um, thanks for putting some light on it. And um, you know, hopefully, some of your listeners will will, will will hear it and seek out the movie and and and, and maybe watch it. And I I think if I have you know one wish, it's that people might be able to who learn about this thing might be able to set this controversy aside and somehow in some way and be able to look at the film through the same kind of fresh eyes that they would any other film. Maybe then they'll, they'll be able to see the film for, for what we intended rather than what they made it out to be. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
right, we are back and we were talking about Don's Plum. And I usually don't do this, but after I talked with Dale, uh, he went ahead and he actually listened to the projection booth and sent me this very heartfelt email. And I actually want to read this email on the show just because, like I said, I feel like we've been picking on this movie at the same time. It's like, okay, it's a movie. We talk about movies. It's kind of our job to talk about this. But anyway, here's the email from him. I just listened to your podcast for the first time, and it was awesome. I listened to Heaven. You guys are really good. Had I listened ahead of my interview with you, I would have given you an interview far more suited to the projection booth. The truth is I made an assumption that you were just another fledgling podcast. Not smart on my part. I'm kicking myself in the ass because all I usually get are people interested in the damn controversy rather than the film itself, and the first time I get an actual, genuine film mind, and I fall into the patterns that have kind of governed my last ten interviews, maybe. I'm kind of furious at myself. Obviously, most people who contact me for interviews are calling about the controversy, not the film. I feel like I just made a bunch of assumptions and disrespected your format. I'm so sorry for that. I'm excited to hear you and your co-hosts take on the film, even if the film gets totally trashed by one or more of you. Of course, I'm hoping that at least one of you get what we were going for. We had a noble purpose for the film. Thank you so much for watching Don's Plum and doing what you do in general for indie film. I taught directing at UGA Grady for a couple of semesters, and my plea to my students was to save American indie film by making features. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing with the projection booth. So totally sweet. Super nice that he did that, and I really appreciate that. So he does seem like a nice guy in the interviews that I've seen, and in in definitely in that letter. And here's the thing, and I'll say this because I'm sure Dale's probably going to hear this. I don't think this is a particularly good film, but, and there's a caveat here, there's two caveats. One is, is that it wasn't actually written by Dale in that documentary and in that piece uh, that's out there now. We hear about these other things that Dale had written. And maybe they were better, and maybe this could have been the stepping stone to a bigger career. And I believe that's true. Everybody starts somewhere. But the other caveat is, unfortunately, for whatever reason, whether it was actually the fault of these guys or not, I agree because it's not 100% clear. I mean, I, I, I don't think we're getting both sides, but it is unfortunate that he got blacklisted, basically, for whatever reason. And I do believe he got blacklisted. And I think that that's unfair, and I think that's bullshit. It was enough that they shut down his movie, but then to fucking surround these people with such shittiness, I think is unfortunate, and I think it's tragic. Super nice guy, and yeah, when you think back, being at that age, making this movie, I've been involved with indie features around that time, and it's just like, yeah, you pour your heart and soul into it. And it really, you know, it, even if the feature or the short or the whatever ends up not being what you wanted it to be necessarily, or maybe not even ready for prime time, at least you look at it as a time capsule as far as I was there, I helped make this, I have memories. And you think about all the, the times behind the scenes actually shooting, setting up the shots and shooting the thing. Right. Definitely. And then, you know, and I worked on those movies and, you know, it's funny and, and, Look, and I'm going to be frank with you. Here we are shitting on these on this movie, and and I'm not just trying to shit on it. I think we're talking about it constructively. You know, the movies that I made are worse. There are the movies that I made are at least as bad or worse. You know, um, I wrote Dahmer versus Casey. If you look at the reviews of that on Amazon, they're pretty much all one. So, and look, and I own it for what it is. It's it's not great. 
I guess, the, but the thing that makes me sad for Dale Wheatley in this is that according to that interview that he's got out there in the post, he only ever received $180 for this movie. I made more than that for Dahmer versus Gacy. And it was an, a straight to video, not very good horror comedy. And so look, that's why I said, you know, there are a lot of movies. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. I wish this man and all of these people really had had a chance to, to do other things. So we could have seen what they really, what they really had, but we didn't get that chance. Yeah. I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair. Cause I mean, just watching this, there's a disjointed quality that just, I, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast that makes you wonder if there's like scenes missing, you know, like maybe there was some degree of character, character development. And I know, like, like I said earlier, Toby McGuire wanted specifics with this. Apparently like, uh, you know, there was a, a, a scene where he, they have a long conversation about masturbation and he talks about thinking, sticking a pinky up his asshole. You know what? I beat off and I stick my pinky <laughs> And he wanted that removed because he thought it was going to uh, hurt, I guess, his uh, action hero image or something. I mean, there's a possibility that there could be, I mean, because 89 minutes, 89 minutes always, to me, if, if it's not a comedy, it seems to indicate there was some post-production meddling. So in that case, there could have been some post-production meddling on Don's plums, uh, you know, I, I, in the case of Don's plum. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Well, I know for sure that there's another version of it out there because he talks about that a little bit in the interview. And then I've even seen, just depending on where you find this movie, like the opening credits are totally different, you know, and I've seen, I think there's a, a, a site called, is it moviecensorship.com where they show screen grabs of like, here's these credits and here's these credits. And then you can see some of the other differences. I don't know whose side completely to take the documentary and, and Dale's commentary certainly, um, you know, does give a pretty good argument for, you know, um, these two guys blew up and became these big actors and, shut down the movie for shitty reasons. And that, that very well may be the case. But I also will say that some of the disjointedness very well could be because they were trying to pad it out to a full-length feature. But here's my thing, and, and I've got something to back this thought up. Maybe not everyone knew they were doing that, but, but I also think that a lot of them did know that it was going to be padded out. But I've not seen any proof yet. Again, I'm not defending DiCaprio. But from everything I've heard, he looks and seems like he was a huge asshole at that time. I don't know what he's like now, but I don't know for sure that he knew, ever knew it was going to be a feature. We know that some of the other guys do. But the reason that I say this is when they had the big meeting and everybody walked away from it. I know as a fact, and you saw the same message, my friend Vincent Pereira, who was uh, part of Kevin Smith's gang, and he directed the movie A Better Place. He was talking about he and uh, Ethan Suppley were making Mallrats, I think, at the time when all of that went down. And so as Ethan Suppley told him, Ethan Suppley and those other guys at least believed that they'd been bamboozled because I don't know that everybody knew there were going to be reshoots. They thought they were standing up for DiCaprio because they thought it had been stretched into something that he didn't know it was going to be. I, but I think it's also clear that at the very least, Tobey Maguire knew it was being stretched out. You know, yeah. it's hard to know. It becomes one of those... I'd love to see a Rashomon version of this where we could really see everybody's story. But unfortunately, we're never going to get that. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to get DiCaprio now 
on tape. I mean, the deposition is as close as we're going to get. And when you're talking about, I should say for the listening audience, when you're talking about the documentary, there's a whole series of videos that are out on the, the New York Post site right now. And I think as of this recording, they've released two out of the three. I think there's at least a third part coming, and they're telling the story behind Don's there's, Plum. Yeah, there's three now. We're getting, again, it's like the winners write the story, so it's, and I can't even say it's the winners in this case, it's a lot of the people who have the time or don't have the careers or the whatever that are there telling the story, so we're not getting all the sides, we're not getting that Rashomon kind of thing, but it is very fascinating to hear these stories and be like, well, I wonder really what happened here. I think that, the, the and I'm sure that, you know, he tells you in that interview, but I, it's the biggest fuck up that a film, a low budget filmmaker can make. And I've learned this the hard way is to not get those fucking releases signed early on, to not make sure that deals are in place in paper. When we shot a movie, um, a, a low, low, low budget trauma movie called Zombie Geddon, which is not good at all, but we had the great William Smith in it. We were very proud to have William Smith. And, you know, we had William Smith come and he shot his scene. And, you know, I don't remember what he was getting exactly. It wasn't a lot, you know. Um, I mean, this was William Smith heading into dementia when we didn't know that until he got there, but pretty well known now that he's got memory problems at the very least. But, you know, he came and he shot his scene. He couldn't remember any of the dialogue. So none of his scenes make any sense. They, they would be they would be out of place in this movie because they make less sense than the things in this movie. But after we shot them, we realized we didn't have a release and we'd already paid him up front. And his wife, who was his manager at that time, called and uh said that he would not sign the release until we paid a bigger chunk than he was getting in the first place as a secondary payment. And, you know, but that's a lesson. That's lesson number one for low budget filmmaking, you know, is get those releases signed. And I don't care if it's your buddies. I don't care who it is. If you have plans to do something with it, you got to get those signed. And unfortunately these guys learn that the hard way. Like I said before, I'm just curious if we would even be talking about this movie if it got released. But then I'm also wondering what happens to Dale Wheatley, what happens to R.D. Robb, what happens to these guys? Do they get the Miramax contract? I mean, it feels like they had stuff in their hands and just got it snatched away. So no wonder there's still so many hurt feelings all of these years later. You know that line in Field of Dreams where Burt Lancaster says, like coming this close to your dreams and feeling them brush past your face. I'm sure that's what it was like. And, you know, and I think that him receiving Dale talking about receiving the $180 check is almost more of a slap in the face after they'd come so close to so much of this. I think, frankly, even if I was broke, I'd rather receive nothing at the end of the day because $180 is like a dick slap. It's like, you know, I mean, I hate to say it in that way, but I'm sure Dale would agree. I mean, that's, that's sad beyond belief to put that much time and effort into this, to get sued into oblivion, to become famous for something bad, to become blacklisted, to become this, you know, um, this, this figure, this alienated outcasted figure in Hollywood and have to go. And, and I don't remember what he said he does now um, advertising. I think he was doing advertising or something like that for a while and to get $180 for all of that. You know, like that's sort of the ultimate fuck you. And my heart goes out to that guy. It really does, because I don't know how this movie went down. But I, no matter what, these guys all getting blacklisted for that. I think it's bullshit. When you've got DiCaprio becomes the biggest actor in Hollywood. You've got Tobey Maguire, who becomes a bigger actor than he should have become. And you've got Kevin Connolly out here 
blowing whatever the fuck amount of money he blew on that Gotti movie, you know, because that's a big budget for a piece of shit that it is. You know, they're all having careers that are big and going on. And these guys, they have nothing to show. He had a $180 check, you know, and he was so broke, he didn't even think to frame it. He cashed it, you know, because he didn't have any money. It's, it's just fucking sad. Now he just gets people coming out of the woodwork saying like, oh, tell me the story. Tell me the controversy. And they're just focused on that. And they actually don't want to know the the craft, the history, the behind the scenes, more of like the actual real making of this movie, which, like I said, probably still holds a probably very bittersweet part of his heart. I would have loved to have written a, a book about this movie. Not that there's a big, you know. But, you know, I just wrote the book on my best friend's birthday, and now I'm working on a book about The Room. I'm really fascinated with the idea of these low-budget movies that become famous for whatever reason they become. And, you know, I would have loved to have written something about this, but literally everyone that comes into contact with this gets sued over the... So, you know, I mean, you're not going to get sued for doing this, but, I mean, when you start getting people in there and you're quoting them and they're saying this and that, and you because you're not going to have DiCaprio side, you're not going to have Toby's side, you're going to get, what, maybe Artie Rob, you're going to have Dale Wheeler, you're going to have the Lion producer. If they say the wrong thing, you get sued. And that seems uh, scary to me, but but I do think it would be a neat book. And just as I, it's a neat story. I think the story, honestly, as much as Dale hates to think of this, but I think the story behind it really is the story. Yeah, the movies, it's, I'm glad that it got made for them. I'm sad it went down in flames. But the story at the end of the day, is the story of how they got fucked over or whatever happened, happened. I don't know, but it, the movie certainly got shut down. Thank you so much to today's co-hosts, Mike and Andrew. Mike, what is happening in your world, sir? Uh, I'm just, I'm just working. I'm working. I, I'm, I'm working on some stuff for uh cinema store magazine. Uh, next month I, I got to get some stuff together for shock cinema magazine. Uh, I'm working on the, uh, the stuff for the shock cinema blog. Want to check that out. I, I think it's just uh I think Shock Cinema Magazine blog or Shock Cinema blog, one of those. I'm in the latest issue of Shock Cinema. I'm, I'm interviewing Sandy Martin. It's uh, number uh, Shock Cinema 56. Uh, I've got some reviews in there. It's at shockcinemamagazine.com if you want to get an issue. I'm in Cinemasur uh, number 32. Uh, I think that's at uh, cinemasur.com. The last time we did these, I did not give the web addresses, so I just want to give the web addresses. That's pretty much what I'm up to. And Andrew, what about you? I know you mentioned the whole best, my best friend's birthday, which I am very fascinated to read about. Yeah, you know, I do a lot of magazine work. Like Mike, I write for Shock Cinema quite a bit, write for other magazines. Um, but, you know, uh, the books are primarily my thing. I've got two books uh, coming out next month. One is an oral history of my best friend's birthday. Um, the thing is, as long as you've known me, Mike, uh, since the 90s, I was wanting to do a book on Tarantino. I did one, but it wasn't really the book I wanted to do. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to do something different. And so I ended up doing a book on my best friend's birthday. That comes out next month. It's called My Best Friend's Birthday, The Making of a Quentin Tarantino Film. Tarantino helped out on that. I got a lot of access, interviewed everybody involved with his mom, everybody else. So that's coming out next month. I've got another novel coming out next month uh, called Layla's Score that I'm very proud of. I stay busy, man. I Stay busy and keep working. Now I'm working on a book about the room, which is an oral history. Uh, and that'll be these oral histories I've always loved because you really, again, that Rashomon style, because so often the versions of the stories don't align. And it's kind of more interesting. It's not always that people are lying, but it's because people's views of the same stories, especially when you get 20, 30 years beyond them, are different. Their memories are different. So it leaves it up to the reader to 
kind of decipher for themselves to discern what's real and what's what the real truth is. And so a lot more of those, hopefully. And I did have my heart transplant since I was on here last. So I'm just trying to, I'm out here trying to stay alive, brother. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I think one of my favorite episodes of the projection booth that I've ever done was the Electric Glide in Blue episode where I had the producer who said he was supposed to be the director and he was a co-writer and then the other co-writer and their two stories could not be more different. And I just had the most fun cutting those two interviews together. And I wish that I'd been able to get the director and Robert Blake in there as well, because I think it would have been four completely different stories. No, those are always great. I love those kind of stories. And I wish there were more of those, you know, because that's my favorite kind of film book is are, are those oral histories. If I could do an oral history of Supernova, do you guys remember that one? Yeah. I do remember that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would love to know all the shit that went down behind the scenes on that movie. I desperately wanted to do an oral history of Mr. Payback. I could not get anyone on board to do it. Like, I tried a, a bunch of, like, Thrillist. I tried, like, Vice. I couldn't get anyone to do it, and that's something I really wanted to do. You know, that Choose Your Own Adventure style movie that Bob Gale did, like, back in the 90s? Yeah, that. That would be amazing. You never know who you're going to get when you go after those things either, because sometimes, you know, you end up getting like the very biggest person and then the little people are like, no, I don't care. Like you just, you don't, and sometimes yeah. you don't get anybody and sometimes you get everybody. Yeah. It's really weird how that, yeah. and you, you've learned that over the years with shock cinema. We go after these people yeah. and you literally have no idea who you're going to be able yeah. to get. And it could be right. the guy yeah. that we release snow and he'll be the guy that fights you on it. I mean, Tony Cox, Tony Cox said no, but Dabney Coleman said yes. Figure that one out. I always get the, oh, I'm actually writing my memoir right now, so I don't want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, I, I got that too. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. They say that a lot. I'm putting out my own book, and I don't want it to conflict. You hear that shit? Ned, I've probably, I've heard that Ned, 20, 30 times over the last 20 years. Ned Beatty was blunt. He just says, I don't want to do that. Like, that, that was what I got from Ned Beatty's people. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Bro. Let's toss and put it to the hounds. But it's her head there on the wall, right next to the 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.